Welcome to The Daily Wrap-Up, a concise show dedicated to bringing you the most relevant independent news as we see it from the last 24 hours. Thursday, February 8th, 2024. Thank you for joining me today. Important topics to cover in other areas of foreign policy in the international community. We're going to discuss some topics that we've discussed more than once over the years. Interestingly enough today that not just are important because of themselves or or from an American perspective, important because of belligerent, destructive U.S. foreign policy, but because it relates directly to what I guess the best way to frame it is the fallout, the changing of the way the international community has operated because of Israel's actions. And I mean in a detrimental way, as as they might perceive it. To the average person, it's fantastic to finally see people, whether doing it for the right reasons or not, finally acknowledging truths that we've all known were verifiable facts in regard to the origins of Israel or U.S. foreign policy itself and what they're actually accomplishing, what they're funding, who they're supporting. A lot has shifted in just the last so many months. In regard to Haiti, I think everyone's aware to some degree or, or another how much the U.S. has manipulated that country and, and and just the West in general. But I'm speaking as an American from a U.S.-centric perspective, but really, it really is, I think, predominantly the U.S. government in regard to Haiti. But we could make a lot of other points there. We're also going to talk about Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and, and how it, it, more than just rare earth minerals, cobalt in particular, and other examples of how this country has been exploited as far back as you can look, but why both of these in their own way or their own individual circumstances have had this, have been dealing with outside influence and manipulation as again, as far back as you can look. And they've been fighting this and pushing back and being regime changed and lied about. But today in particular, it seems as if there's a lot going on that is, it's never just one thing, but in a large way, the peoples of these countries recognizing, or more specifically, the movements led by the peoples of these countries that are recognizing an opportunity that can see the, the, the again, I, I'm going to say the U.S. government, but really it's, it's more than that. But in this sense that you can, they can see the, the, the adversary of theirs that has been manipulating this country taking its resources for its own benefit under the guise of helping them has recognized the opportunity that this entity is distracted. It's spread too thin. There's a lot going on in the world that has taken its attention. And as well as the fact that a lot that has caused disorientation has caused just a rift in what's going on. And to the point to where there's an opportunity for these kind of entities to recapture what they see as theirs. And now it's obvious to see that that could be framed as terrorism or freedom or revolution for you, you know, depending on who's framing it. That's always how this works, where, you know, the Palestinians become terrorists or they become the freedom fighters, depending on what angle you're looking at. And this is always how it goes. So we're going to talk about these countries today and, and how they've been exploited for a long time and how right now it seems to be that they're finding a way to push back and gaining attention for it and how we're going to see the same kind of I would even argue more destructive than usual because of how insecure they are right now, the foreign policy that will follow. We're going to start today with a quick point about Candida auris and this fungus that keeps coming up in the conversation that now the CDC for like the third time in the last so many months is warning that it's going to happen even though there's not much evidence of it, but it could, it could break out everywhere. 
And it could just be one of those hype moments that they keep you in fear. But it's interesting how it overlaps with Palestine. And we've seen, as of just, I think, yesterday or today, the Mossad put out a tweet saying another one of our IDF members have succumbed to this mysterious fungus they caught while they were in Palestine, simultaneously arguing, excuse me, you know, they, they say something else, the Gaza, but at the same time pointing out how they're worried about how this could grow and, and grow beyond the borders of just Gaza, as I see that becoming, if they should need it, a very easy tool to use and apply to the, the global WHO-level community to show how this needs to be dealt with, which could lead to certain agendas. But we're going to talk about why I think that's interesting. A quick point about Tucker Carlson seeming as how that's eclipsed everything important in the world, and I'm going to make a point about it today. Uh, and then, of course, covering what we what we will today, depending on time, about Israel Gaza and the continuation of that coverage as I just framed it today in that section and and again I, I really will do it justice today based on what we're going to show but that Israel has defeated itself I said this I think a week into this conversation I think I just framed it as Israel has already lost the information war and I think that was I think that's proven itself to be wildly clear that's the case but I think today the point is that and I've made this point the entire time, but really becoming explicitly clear that they have defeated themselves. And there was a way that they could have done this right out of the gate that would have guaranteed unfettered support, complete unconditional rather support as they had grown used to, but more than we'd ever seen had they just simply decided not to go full genocide immediately and leaned into the international community after October 7th. I mean, it, it would have never... You all know how that would have gone. The point is, instead, they went aggressive, full genocide without concern for the fallout, and that has seemingly dismantled their control over your awareness of what's always been happening, which is a positive, very clearly, regardless of how much negative fallout comes along with that. So let's start today with that point about, oh, technically, I, for, I forgot I included this as well, just because I thought this was hilarious and interesting, but it, you know, you can always find a way these things relate. It was uh, technologyreview.com. Solar geoengineering could start <laughs> soon if it starts small. <laughs> I just like, my God. Like, who knows if the person writing that or the editor of the platform is is aware that that's the most absurd thing to say of, of all topics we could discuss. Because you've, I mean, as I, I'll just read what I wrote. I said, sure. Sure, that, that makes sense, you know, or or it started decades ago and is blatantly obvious and has been admitted to countless times, you know, either or whatever you feel like you want to decide, you know, totally fake or everywhere, whatever you want to choose. I just think things like this are just a, a sign of the times about how crazy, how ridiculous, like to the point to where. I mean, it, well, let's just look at it as a broad sense, whatever apparatus is pushing that agenda, assuming that's what's happening right there. Do they not know that we all at almost every single level know that there is a thing, aerosol, stratospheric aerosol injection, geoengineering, chemtrails, whatever people are calling it. Everybody knows that this is a level. I mean, here's what's funny about this. At some level right now, even on Twitter or wherever else in these conversations or especially, you even bring up the concept of this. It's like lunacy, laugh out loud. I'm going to fall out of my chair because you're just so childish. That's such a conspiracy theory. But the point is they're clearly going, but this is a real thing. Whether or not you want to pretend that it's happening or not, Brennan in 2018 at the, uh, I think it was, this was the CFO, Council of Foreign Relations, I forget what group it was, was standing up there going, you know, this is what we're doing, right? This is, I mean, I've, I brought this up so many times. This is what he was essentially pointing to. 
I think this was even 2018. Yeah. Stratospheric aerosol injection tactics and costs in the first 15 years of deployment. Just, I mean, hilariously pointing out when you read it, it does go into prior work on this topic. Nonetheless, the point was, obviously, it's a real thing. They've planned it. They've costed it. They've mapped it out. They've got costs aligned to certain tax. So it's just hilarious that people will then still go, that's a whole fake story as they're mapping out how to do it. But the obvious real point is that it has been going on for decades. And again, has been openly admitted to. Even something that was just brought up in conversation with me the, uh, today, I think, or yesterday. Things like chaff. As, as, the, as I, of course, it was fact-checked and lied about. But things that we know are real, as even, I think it was an Air Force person who became a weatherman admitted. Yeah, they released this stuff for certain radar reasons. The point is, nonetheless, it's the same. You're releasing different types of chemicals, or rather specifically metals. And the point is that this is real. And for them to come out now and go, Maybe this could start soon. You realize the date from that's February 5th, 2024. It tells me that there's a reason they want this in your mind. Again, I, you know, always just brought they being whoever is behind wanting you to look at this and think a certain thing. It could be government. It could be special interests. They being the hierarchy enslaving you. And we have a shirt for that, by the way, if you'd like to check out our big frog, uh, our store. I, I will pause there for a second because I always, for some reason, want to say, yeah, big frog clothing. It's right there. I'll include the link. I'm just sorry. I'm just blanking because I'm like, is it Big Frog? I always feel like I say their name wrong. And it, like, these guys are absolutely fantastic. I hope you guys support them outside of the work for T-Lab. But there's the link. Anyway, the point is that there's an entity out there that I think wants this in your mind because we can prove that that's ridiculous, right? And secondarily, that it makes me wonder why it would start to be normalized in the sense of going, okay, well, now it actually is happening. And I just wanted to include that thought, especially since you know where my mind goes on this concept, that I cannot decouple the idea of literally spraying particles of metal, whether it's barium, aluminum, because you realize the argument under this topic is it's for climate change and we're going to reflect the sun. Okay, whatever your ridiculous concept is, the idea is that you're literally spraying particulates. So it's not that far reaching to wrap your mind around smart dust in that same conversation, especially if you understand that it's been around for decades. And my question was whether that relates to something that happened during the COVID-19 illusion. Something to consider in that conversation. Now, on that same point, we see things like this happening. Now, I can, we can prove, as I have many times, that the idea of wearing a mask is guaranteed to increase your risk of all sorts of similarly related concepts. Now, this one relates to something that is largely gained while in the hospital. This is what something that's a bacterial or rather a fungal infection that spreads rapidly through hospitals. It went overwhelmingly out of control during COVID, which continue to point out exactly why most people are afraid of going to, you know, medical treatment today as a concern, especially seeing as how it's at least as we're told third leading cause of death in this country, which should scare the hell out of you probably worse than that. But the point was that their mask was, I think it was Candida albicans was something that you could gain through a fungal infection with yeast and so on in your mouth, wearing a mask. It's, it, was, it, was out, it went all over the place and they tried to deny it. That's, at, look up dentists and overlaps during oral thrush and things like that during COVID. It was horrifying, which then leads to things like bacterial pneumonia, systemic inflammation, which are very serious and all get called COVID. Side point, or rather that's the side point. This point is about the idea that this is being pushed again as of the 7th, yesterday, from the CDC, silent killer, fungal infection spreading rapidly through the, US, through the U.S. What's funny about it is it's getting framed as if it's like a new impending threat. 
but we went, there was, this was spreading all over the place during the COVID-19 illusion and it was definitely rising and it was a concern. So it's, it's less than that now you understand. And yet now they're going, Oh my God. And it can kill 60% of people fatality and whatever they're saying, hyping all these high numbers. I don't really, I'm not concerned about what this is. I think this is something that like anything else is something you should be worried about in a normal sense. Be prepared, be safe, take care of yourself. But I wonder what this is, why this is being floated, especially since you can see that this is something overlapping with the concept of what's going on in Gaza, which is really strange. Again, my point there, in case you missed it, I was saying it quickly, is that there was a, this was peaking during the COVID-19 conversation. So for them to hype it now, it doesn't make much sense unless they're, in my opinion, unless there's another reason they want you thinking about this. Gaza was given a, an experimental Pfizer injection to deal with this exact thing. And this is before the, the recent point. This was on December 27th I covered this. And in case you hadn't seen that, this was the post from their uh, one of their health correspondents, I believe. Uh, let me make sure I got her, her actual title here. Yeah, health correspondent pointing out as we discussed at the time, in light of several cases of soldiers who were injured in Gaza and who then suffered from fungal infection, which it was Candida or uh, 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 Oris, recently doctors in several hospitals requested to import into Israel an experimental drug, which wouldn't be the first time, seeing as how the COVID shot was the same thing, for the treatment of this fungi from the Pfizer company called Fosmano... Uh, that's weird. I forgot this one. Fosmanogepix. Fosmanogepix. <laughs> I don't even know why they picked the strangest name for these things. Probably so it's impossible. Nonetheless, the point was they didn't need to really import it. You know why? Because we talked about it at the time. They were they, These were the three Israeli hospitals that were calling for it. They all took part in the phase two trials of that drug. So this is what's crazy to me is they literally were taking part in phase two trials of this drug before this became a weird problem that popped up in Gaza. After this weird discussion during the COVID-19, does that seem a little bit on the nose? And they just so happen to be the ones that did the trials and now they're using. <laughs> okay, maybe it's all coincidence, but the point is that seemed a little strange to me. So this is December 26th, 2023. A soldier with fungal infection dies. Fears grow in Gaza diseases spreading into Israel. That was the point about kind of framing Gaza as dangerous and sickly and disease ridden, even though this is happening because of what they're doing. And on top of that, it could be used as a as a point to kind of marshal the whole WHO angle of this to argue that they have to take certain actions because Gaza will make everybody else sick. Like, you can see how that could be applied. Now, Mohammed Shihada pointed out this same thing, pointing out the, 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 the hype about this. Per Haaretz, Israeli experts acknowledge the siege and war are in fact creating an incubator for these very things. So you could argue that that's, in a way, biological weapon uh, warfare in a sense of, Cre creating and forcing the situations to cause these biological problems. But it says Gaza's overcrowded bombing and besieged hospitals are unable to diagnose patients, let alone treat these things. So it says the conditions in the Gaza Strip have created an incubator for these problems, which I think is by design. Then it says this war needs to stop immediately before deadly and untreatable diseases wipe out a significant portion of the population and spread beyond Gaza's borders. That's just Mohammed's general concern, but I think I can see how that could be marshaled against everybody, whether real or not. It says, but senior Israeli public officials, guess what, are calling to weaponize the spread of this. 
which actually happened. Retired Israeli general says the spread of this will help us bring victory closer. So that's my point about flooding things, making sure you don't you either taint the water more or don't allow any fresh water. You're guaranteeing, like they did with Yemen, that you will cause the very illnesses you then point at and blame on them. Now, last one, it says Israeli sources say the most likely origin of this dangerous fungus may be in soil contaminated with sewage water, which is exactly what they caused. Lastly, today, or rather yesterday, Mossad pointed out another IDF soldier died from this fungus. That's just very interesting to me. It seems like an odd thing for them to hype and focus on, or you could not, don't use the word hype, just for them to highlight. I find that interesting. Now, all of that being said, it's just something I thought you should be aware of. I personally feel that there's something strange there. Now, also, for, let's put it this way. This could be nothing. This could be no, this could not be engineered in any way. It could just be general reporting about something that's happening and it will end up going nowhere. And maybe it was nothing. But just because it ends up being nothing, it doesn't mean it wasn't something that was like, I find the way that this is being presented is suspicious to me. And for those of you that pay attention to the way these things go, you'll, you'll pick these things out. But realize there are things that are, in fact, being manipulated that just don't end up being executed, manipulated like that. So just consider that. That's not meant to say that, that you know, whether or not it happens, that either, regardless. The point is just be concerned, be uh, skeptical about it. Keep an eye on this, especially as we see masks and these kind of conversations rising back up. It's important to see how this may be dealt with. I mean, the, the bigger point to just walk away with here is the interesting reality and watch this show about this. Pfizer is yet again using an experimental injection on the people in Gaza, as well as the fact they shipped, what, 50,000 COVID-19 vaccines in the middle of a starvation tactic. Like, it's just so crazy how this seems to be allowed while food isn't. In any case, I wanted to include this one point as well in the larger health freedom COVID-19 illusion discussion. This is from the Irish Star. Doctor shares crucial information on the supposed mystery respiratory virus, which I haven't been doing as much focus on the building of the variant. Like It doesn't seem to be anybody doing that that much right now. But there is a little bit of hype building back again about hospitals being overrun and masks coming back. I haven't seen it go too crazy just yet, but it is. You, we all feel it. There's little points about it rising back up. It's interesting how little some people seem to care about it, which tells you that I don't think they are having the influence they did before this. Thank you for everybody that's been pushing back. But this is, I think this is important. It's the doctor who decided to speak up. To that very point, I think that's why, because he recognizes that there's more people out there interested to hear the truth. A doctor has shared some crucial information with regard to the supposed mystery respiratory virus that has been seemingly going around the country. I've seen a few of those reports too. Our hospitals are overrun. Claims were being made that the emergency rooms were overcrowded with people suffering from respiratory issues. While Dr. Eric was his name, confirmed these claims. He apparently, from his, there, he claims to debunk this mystery virus. He says there is no so mystery respiratory virus going around making people sick. We are just in the middle of a bad respiratory season. And I thought about that for a second. I said, well, that's interesting, right? Because all he's basically saying, and you don't even have to put the word bad in there. We're just, in the thing that happens every single winter, right? And so this is what's interesting about this rollaround because right before the COVID illusion, and even for those that would argue there's no such thing as a virus, that flu doesn't exist and whatever else, you could look at it on whatever you think it is. Whatever reason you think people seem to get it, maybe you think somebody's doing that to be, whatever it is, the point is we have this kind of ebb and flow every time to some degree. And right before the COVID illusion, we had one of the worst seasons in a long time. And what's interesting about this is that 
it's less now than it was then. And yet right now, just because it's people have the sniffles and oh my God, COVID's back, right? That's the kind of mentality in some people's minds. And he brought, and he goes on to say, I work in a hospital and admit patients from the emergency room. And yeah, there are crowded, the, the rooms are crowded right now, but it's not because of a mystery virus. It doesn't seem to suggest that it's wildly over the norm, but he says, just because you're sick, and this is important, and you get tested for COVID and the flu, which who in the world gets tested for the flu? I don't even know why he said that. I don't even think there's any, gen- like go to the net, go to a CB, uh, Walgreens or wherever you would go and ask them for a test for flu. They'll look at you like you're crazy. They don't have these things. Just trust me. It's not something most people do. And before COVID-19 illusion, people didn't get tested for the flu. They just were like, oh, I've got the flu because you just had the sniffle. Doesn't that tell you something? Because we conflate these things and you have a certain set of symptoms. We just go, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's that. Well, that's what happened during the COVID illusion. You had these set of symptoms and we just deemed it COVID. They just had a little more hype around the narrative and were more worried about it. Turns out it was never even worse than what we told the flu was per the Ionitis group and the peer-reviewed science that found that out. Point zero, I can't remember off the top of my head. Let me see if I can grab it. I forget which one it was. I think it was this one. Yeah, perfect. Age stratified infection fatality rate. Peer reviewed January 2023. Hasn't been challenged. No, this is the leading edge of this science. At a global level, before vaccinations were ever given, not the, not the absolute, the infection fatality rate may have been as low as 0.03 and 0.07. That's 0.03 if you're under 59, 0.07 under 69. That's less than 1%. That is less than the flu. And then 94% of the global population is in that category. 94% of the entire world was at less than the flu risk. If that's even what actually happened. And this, we just still go forward pretending like that's not the case. It all came from the... uh Imperial College of London, their 3.6 complete guess percent, which was proven to have been used based on their assumptions. But by the way, which is kind of how it's always been, these so-called experts that give you their opinions as fact all the time. And we go with that because they're in the elitist scientific scientism group. Anyway, the point is obviously just because people have the sniffles and go to the hospital and are getting tested for things and it's not COVID doesn't mean we've got a new mystery thing. It just means you've got a respiratory virus. He says there are dozens and dozens and dozens of them out there. We've just been have hyped. we been hyped into this moment where people have, you know, become all, they've all become hypochondriacs. People, at least in that category, they're terrified. And that's how this works. Before this, people would get the sniffles and they'd go, oh, okay, probably the flu. Even if you got really sick, remember, you still just went like, well, you know, I'll go get some medicine from, from Walgreens. Isn't that strange? And all of a sudden after this, it's like, oh my God, it feels different this time. My fingers feel different. Oh my God. Everyone just kind of lost it. And the science, the science continues to show that we were wrong or those that believed it were wrong. Now, last point on that, the thing that was actually hurting people, the dangerous gene therapy experimental shots with God knows what else going on that we now know are DNA contaminated, that have all sorts of uh, unnecessary proteins that are causing all sorts of unparalleled problems in the body because of the N1 methyl pseudouridine modified RNA that's completely making it last and continue to circulate through your body which of course is the main point about the, oh, now I forget. No, I'm not, I can't remember the one. <laughs> I used to pull these up so quickly. Anyway, the point that the spike protein continues to circulate through your body. The point is Kevin McKernan points out in the new study, spike protein, mRNA, well, the mRNA 
that carries the instructions to make the spike protein and the protein itself found in the placentas after women give birth. I mean, this is exactly what we've been telling you. Not only does it go everywhere long after you take these dangerous things, but it absolutely then passes to your children through the breast milk and the fact that these things, and this, this goes to the level of actual like integration with your DNA, like the fact that, that these are studies that we've continued, not, not this in particular, but that that is exactly, I think we've got what, four different studies that have shown that even science.org, I just talked about it. More evidence that shows that this does integrate with your DNA. The point though is that this is everything they said didn't happen. Everything. And it actually has Simon down here, Dr. Simon Guttick points out, people got permabanned from this platform for raising questions about that two years ago. Here's the study itself, the results. The vaccine mRNA was detected in the two placentas tested using PCR test. The location of the vaccine, which very rightly so should question that as well. The location of the vaccine mRNA was mainly in the villostroma with a notably high signal in the deduta, deducia, how do you say that? Ducidua, interesting word, basically other parts of the placenta and so on. It's so funny. I'm never embarrassed to try to pronounce these things. A lot of people always laugh, but I don't care. It doesn't matter. It's because not people don't have understand how every word is pronounced. Doesn't you, you know understanding things is quite different compared to that of patient two. The bottom line is very clear. The spike protein expression was detected in these, it, but it, in one of them, not the other. But the ultimate mRNA was detected throughout. The point is that this is multiple, multiple studies have found this. Here's the title itself. Transplacental transmission of the COVID-19 vaccine mRNA. Now, when I just said that about the studies, I meant specifically that this stuff is found throughout the body. The placenta seems to be a new aspect of it, but their own studies show the lipid nanoparticle concentration in the liver and the spleen, but everywhere in your body is the point. And I don't know why we didn't understand what that meant at the time where people willfully ignored that. But I think that's really important to understand that this stuff is still hurting people. So keep that in mind. We'll continue to follow up on this. Let's talk about an interesting conversation that seems to be eclipsing everything important in my mind around Tucker Carlson. Now, you guys know well that I'm very, very skeptical of most anybody that's in the corporate media, especially people that have the kind of ties he do. But that doesn't does. But that doesn't mean that I blindly dismiss. I, I reference his work over the years. I, I think you know me about the point that anybody coming from any any platform or any person Information is still information. It doesn't matter who says it, if you can vet it and prove it for yourself. This is interesting to me for, for multiple reasons. Now, clearly after this Fox News dispute, which, by the way, I don't know, I, I like last I, last I left with this conversation, he was still under contract with Fox. I don't know if that petered out and the time has lapsed, but there's this weird thing where it's everyone was, like, I have a weird suspicion about the way this is even working out, right? Tucker on X and all this stuff. It's just like, really? Like, there, there's a very clear transition happening right now with the way that Steve and I have talked about the re of reimagining the way journalism works and the Twitter files and, you know, and they're all praising Elon, like he's saving free speech. Well, even though we can all literally prove that's not what's happening and people are being censored all over the place. So when they, people like this lean into that, at the very least, you have to acknowledge that they're kind of pulling punches when it comes to things like X. And maybe you think, well, that's the means to an end. Well, okay. You can, you can make up the narrative however you want, it's still a level of dishonesty. Like, exa for example, showing how there's been times that he has said that he was never, when I was on Fox, I could say whatever I want. Well, that's clearly not true. Looking back, clearly. And it wasn't just that last one thing, which is why he left. There's, there's, you can clearly point out there's things that were suppressed, things that he wasn't saying, and that you could now prove. Or, for example, him saying 
off record that he hates Donald Trump and he's the worst person. And I can't wait to not talk about him anymore. But then publicly saying, yeah, we're all supporting him. There's just obvious things like that, which it's not unique to Tucker or unique to corporate media. Those things matter, though. And I think at a large level, I think it becomes interesting to see how these kind of things are being controlled, in my opinion. And this is an example of that. Journalists criticize Tucker Carlson over Putin interview. Okay. Is this that unique? I mean, let's be really clear about this. Outside of the two-party paradigm, first of all, Putin takes interviews. He's interviewed people, maybe not in U.S. focus, but reasonably. I mean, I've seen his interviews more than once where he says the same kind of things that we can expect about criticizing Western policy and so on. But nonetheless, any world leader in an interview has relevance because they're a world leader, no matter who they are, right? I think we can all agree on that. Not that you may think it's important, but there's relevance to it. So when Tucker or anybody interviews somebody like Putin, there's it's, well, I'm interested. I want to see what they say, right? But it shouldn't be in my mind that it's like this unparalleled, unprecedented thing that it's kind of being framed at. Then it becomes the idea that he's somehow, which I think is equally ridiculous, and I'm going to criticize it here, he's somehow, you know, ch- doing something wrong. Like he's a, a traitor for talking to Putin. That's, that's so ridiculously childish. And I'll show you the examples. And the point is that's always been the way it's supposed to go. And they all know that. So that's at one level, there are people in the paradigm that would see this as Tucker being suppressed. They're attacking him because he's doing the right thing. And that's what I think this becomes. Now, what's the real story? The interview hasn't even happened yet. And the story is Tucker Carlson's being suppressed because he's fighting for the truth. I don't believe that's what's happening. I think this is about politics. And even if you think that, that this is just an actual effort to go after him because he's the right versus the left, it's still not really about some profound thing that you're going to find through the interview, at least how I see it so far. So I think this is about, in my opinion, as, as, as I would see it through the two-party illusion, setting him up as the suppressed, censored journalist fighting to get the truth out to you when really you're just going through the motions doing the same thing you have the entire time and have access to somebody like Putin. And I think what's real, even more interesting is I'm going to predict that the way this will turn out is the interview will happen and it will be an interview with Putin. There'll be things that'll be said that'll be like, yeah, that's, he's criticizing Western foreign policy. He's calling out what they're doing in Ukraine. He's accusing them of doing all these big things that are that would I would I would also find interesting. Even going to the level of claims of bio labs and things that will get your attention. Now, that's important, no matter who's giving the interview. But is it that different than anything you've heard him say before? I'm, hypothetically, it wouldn't be other than Tucker's the one doing it and he's doing it through suppression. So the story becomes... Tucker is being suppressed and getting this out as opposed to what the interview's context and content was about. That's my prediction. The story is him doing this and being suppressed. That's already the way it's set up. I'm willing to bet you that's the point of all of it. Tell Maybe I'm jaded. Certainly possible. I don't believe this is going to be anything other than manufacturing the idea that he is suppressed and censored and getting people to blindly follow along with what happens. That's my personal opinion. Fiorella Isabel, it says, Jen Psaki labels Tucker a conspiracy theorist for interviewing a world leader. I mean, that doesn't even connect. I mean, that, it's just hilarious to me. But it says, for actually interviewing Putin in Russia while she sits in D.C. lying and rewriting history. I completely agree with that. Interviewing pre-selected State Department guests. Exactly. Asking pre-selected State Department limited questions. Exactly. And pushing for more war via CIA talking points. All after she left her job as the press secretary for, for the most warmongering administration we've ever seen in recent history. I agree with all of that. 
Like I, I complete like, and I would even go as far as to say that people like Pisaki have no idea about what I might think is the larger agenda. They probably hate this person. They probably actually think they're fighting the Republicans because I don't think most of these people are truly in the know about the larger game being played. They may have a sneaking suspicion about it. Some of them may be involved. That's my personal opinion. But I don't believe that the Grams, the, the Maxine Waters, the Nancy Pelosi's, the Bidens, the Trumps really know what's going on. It's just my personal opinion. I think that they're being played like everybody else. But here's what's interesting. The whole narrative is Putin, Tucker's doing the thing that nobody else is doing, that nobody wants to interview Putin. But that's not entirely accurate. But let me show you what I mean by that. First of all, here is what this person who I've made fun of many times is saying, Christine, I'm a poor, I'm on poor. Tucker says, does Tucker really think we journalists, we'll make fun of that in a second, haven't been trying to interview President Putin every day since his full-scale invasion of Ukraine? It's absurd. We'll continue to ask for an interview, just as we have for years now. Now, I don't. I, my take on that is I do think that's true, but I don't think it's entirely true. I don't think Christine or any rest of these puppet mainstream journalists uh, they're very aware that there would be frowned upon, that the apparatus, the system, the establishment would would probably penalize them for doing like I, that's what I would I would argue that they know that. So they kind of actively omit and avoid and, you know, but I would still argue, I bet you at some level there are offers for interviews. And I, I would understand why Putin wouldn't want to interview with these ridiculous people. And here's exactly one of those points, as Eva Bartlett points out during an interview, Amon Poor thrusts a photo of Aleppo boy, the one that they manipulated uh, at Sergei Lavrov and implied Russia had injured him on the bombing, even though we now know that was a completely manufactured lie. They, his father and him testified to that, but there was no airstrike and she interviewed with the family and, and, and the Amonpar. No. So you flush, you push this picture in front of him when you're wrong about the story without doing any due diligence because you're a narrative management. Right. But the point is, and she wonders why they don't want to interview with her because they know she's a liar or at the very least blindly goes along with Western talking points without that means you're not, you're not a journalist. You're a stenographer for the state. So that's why makes perfect sense. So I bet you it's a little bit of both. I don't think she really wants that because she knows it's not going to sit well with her state controllers, but at the same time, it's not going to be accepted because they see her for that. So it's kind of it's kind of an open, you know, they both play that game. But my point is to see now them push back in such a way to argue that, or just jump ahead real quickly, that, oh my God, we're going to sanction Tucker Carlson, which not sure whether that's the truth or not. Well, how does that make sense? Why would the EU or anybody else penalize him for doing this when the argument is, at least the stated narrative, that they're trying to do that as well? So if she got an interview with Putin, would they sanction her? Like, my point is it doesn't make sense. Because again, historically, this happens all the time. I mean, in fact, here is Amanpour right there. Aman, Amanpour, how you say your last name, interviewing Assad. So, I mean, what are we talking about? Why it's my, I guess the, the overarching point, this feels wildly manufactured. I think that's clear by now. If she's interviewing Assad, how is that any different? Is, is, are we pretending the times have changed since then? And now it's a war crime to interview an adversary. It, it doesn't make much sense. But Kavork Almasian responds after her thing about we journalists saying, because you have a track record of not really doing journalism, but rather delivering threatening messages from American deep state, which is what she did here. Exactly the point. But if they've done this before, if she's arguing we're trying to get that interview with Putin, my whole argument is it doesn't really add up that they would react this way unless you think there really is a two-party agenda playing here. That, that, that's I'm sure a lot of the people that support Tucker think that the Democrats are out to get him. I just can't believe how naive that is. Truly, that's my opinion. 
I do believe that there are individuals within that that might believe it, like I said, the Pelosi's of the world, but I don't are, I don't believe this is truly about the long-term game of trying to, you know, like that he's fighting for your freedom and truth by interviewing Putin and they're trying to stop him. I just, to me, it sounds like a cartoon. But this this guy points out, what's his, Krasenstein, whoever, people reported this, my point, the European Union is said to be seeking sanctions and a travel ban because of this. But then they spoke up and said, that's not true at all, and that's not happening. So who is, is this more Republican talking points meant to make it sound like that's the case, which would really make sense to me? Maybe. Or they said it because it's about trying to keep the narrative going and they try to walk it back. But I think you're start, you can see that this does not feel genuine. Dr. Eli David, of course, Mr. Propagandist for, for Israel, said something very interesting. Again, with his with his clumsy, ridiculous, um, you know, not not thought through propaganda, he actually made a point for us here. He says, "I see all the outrage for Tucker Carlson interviewing Putin. Where is that outrage when CNN, BBC interview Hamas leaders?" Hey, great, good point there. Except the point that he's trying to make is not the point that I'm making. The point is, they do do that. So what's the difference here? Why are they allowed to interview this person here, but he's not over there? Aha. Because they want you looking at the Hamas leaders, right? And so it's sort of like this allowed concept. But in this case, I think I I argue that they ultimately want this whole dynamic to look like Tucker's being suppressed and trying to interview Putin. And yeah, I would argue that they don't want you hearing what he has to say about Western foreign policy. But ultimately, the outrage seems feigned. It seems because Hamas, they're telling you, are the biggest terrorists in the world right now, right? Doesn't add up. It really doesn't. Lastly, True Street Media points out this absurd, like laughable, as, as they write, is this a date we're watching? This is a CNN journalist interviewing Zelensky. But Zelensky's on the good guy team, so we're allowed to, even though he's a neo-Nazi working with Nazi groups. But he's a Jewish, so you're not allowed to say that. It's stupid. Even though Israel openly funded the Azov movement the entire time. Oh, we can't talk about that. But the point is, obviously, that they do have interviews like this with world leaders on certain sides of a dynamic, but only one is allowed. And the point is, it's not really an interview. It's a big fluff story about how, what do you think about at night when you're going to bed? And it's like dumb questions like that. It's all nonsense. And guys, Tucker was a part of this nonsense and still is, in my opinion. So on that note, let's talk about Haiti. Because you, really, you really have to consider how these conversations, these important real-world conversations, like what's going on with Palestine right now, the people... The actual people, their families, and what they're dealing with on the ground every day in their day-to-day, moment-to-moment lives, and how that's covered or not by people in those positions. I really want us to think about that in the larger point, because I think that it's it's selective omission. There's a lot of point. Like obviously, I think the larger point about the independent versus corporate and in between media is that there's an effort right now to kind of retake what they've clearly lost, which, by the way, began before October 7th. But I think because of that, it's gotten desperate. So they're trying to regain this control. And that's why, through a lot of these points, you're going to see this kind of stuff. You're going to see the corporate media entities like CNN suddenly stepping up to say the right thing. And I think it's desperate. Like Pierce Morgan, for example, if we get there today, had an interview where I, I argue, and you know, maybe maybe he is just coming around. I don't believe that. I don't believe someone like him is just suddenly after all these years going, aha, I don't believe that. You got to be a pretty stupid person to not be able to see it by now. But I argue they're trying to regain some clout, some points by just going, okay, we're, we're going to take the heat from the groups like the Zionist state of Israel to 
potentially regain some influence in the in the media because we've lost it all. Because they're not stupid. They know everybody sees what's going on. So they're going to try to lie to you about it. Before we get to Israel, though, again, because in what's going on in the Middle East in particular, states like Haiti are recognizing, or rather the peoples within them, one, that they've been oppressed and stolen from by outside powers since, I mean, really since the original creation of the state. And they're done with that. They're tired of being exploited for other for the gain of outside countries while watching their country continue to decline. And that's what we're staring at. There's been a U.S. puppet after U.S. puppet in this location. You, I mean, Haiti goes, we talk about the, the Clinton Foundation. There's a lot of overlaps here. But what we're staring at here, in my opinion, is the people of Haiti rising up to try to remove a puppet that they see an opportunity to remove because of everything else going on. But at the same time, it's never that simple. I think there are elements already of the U.S. government, both in Haiti and in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, we'll talk about next, already trying to influence those movements on the ground. And this is an important thing to think about in a regime change or even like this in a situation where you have a U.S. puppet in power, right? And they see the writing on the wall. They see that people are going to remove them from power. There's another game to this where they can influence those, those protests from the ground and you're still, you're still going to lose. You're still going to lose the power you may have maintained over that sitting president as the puppet you had, but you can at least maybe control the direction of the other loss, right? One side of it is they remove this guy from power. That's a loss, right? But on the other side of it, you could potentially guide these new movements to pick or align with somebody who still might give you some level of influence. So you lose either way, but you can guide the loss. That, I hope that makes sense because in, in other cases, you just have a, a pro- you know, a, a, a puppet or excuse me, a president that's not willing to bow to U.S. interests or Western interests, and they carry out a regime change to remove them from power so they can maximize their interest in the country, export things, exploit the country for their own benefit at the expense of the people while claiming to fight for their freedom. Right. So that's a that's a complete benefit. That's a win for them. And you can see how that goes very simply. But if they lose that, they can still try to guide it to somebody. And, and this is how we see a lot of these movements. Like, think about how things in the, in the United States have been influenced. Different movements trying to rise up against, like, even something as simple as the, the Occupy movement. As we can look back and see that there was clear FBI infiltration that was deliberately, and there's documents to this, designed to drive it into the ground and make it look ridiculous. Because it, was, it had very clear momentum. And that's how that works. You still ultimately lost in a way because people are paying attention but you just decide to kind of collapse that movement in a way that taints the way you view it going forward. So here, this is this is from today, TRT World Report, that at least two protesters have been killed during ongoing violent demonstrations in Haiti's capital. So it's interesting. Where's the U.S. government? Aren't they the ones that just lose their minds when protesters get shot, even one or two, when it's somebody they don't like doing it? But you might not be surprised to find out this keeps happening, and they don't care. They haven't said a word about this. And this was happening before October 7th, so where have they been about that? Do they not care about these people? Are these people less important? Is it because they're a different color? Like, what? what do you, well, you have to think of something. Ultimately, I think it's truly because they don't care what happens to people in any country, no matter what, as long as they get what they want. So as long as they've got what they want coming out of the country, you do whatever you want. That's the important thing to understand. So let's start going kind of, you know, uh, chronologically to a degree from an article from 2016. Former Haitian president of Senate exposes Clinton Foundation. 
Hillary Clinton tried to bribe me. So I thought we'd start here just to show you this does not start. This is not a, just a, a new concept. And by the way, this didn't start in 2016 either. This goes back a long way, as far as some people would argue, from the original creation of the state itself. But what's important to understand is that your government has been, as far back as you want to look, doing everything it could to manipulate this country for all sorts of different reasons. Geostrategic control over the area, resources taken from the area. I mean, it's it's the same stuff you'd expect anywhere else. So what we're going to start with in this case is one of a former president of the Senate speaking up in front of Donald Trump, by the way, we've, you've seen this, and expressing the fact that the Clinton Foundation has bribed them, has manipulated them, have, have used these resources, have allowed people to die for their own benefit. And this is important to understand. So that was president of, president of the Senate in Haiti in 1990. So that was Trump for the podcast. That's Trump sitting, um, I think it's in Miami. And uh, well, I'll, I'll read the article next. When Bill Clinton invaded the island. And I have the record. Clinton invaded the island, he said. About the Clinton Foundation. And I want to have a few minutes today to talk about that. Uh, Mr. First of all, to understand where I come from, I am from both cultures. I am from the American culture because I came here at a very early age. And while you went to New York Military Academy, I went to New Jersey, a military academy in New Jersey. About the same time, we are about the same age. You could have been my underclassman. <laughs> so really, it's you understand me and I will understand you. Okay? So, but my dream was to go back to Haiti to do for Haiti what I had seen in the United States. Free enterprise system, the justice system you have here, and fight corruption in Haiti. And in 1991, I was elected senator of Haiti. The same year, Jean-Bertrand Aristide was elected president. In February of 1994, I became president of the Senate. And I had to deal with the Clinton invasion of Haiti. And I learned so much about the Clinton because I was working so much with the American intelligence at that time. Clinton wanted to buy me out. Now, just make sure you didn't miss what he said. That I mean, you could hear that more than one way, right? That, that he just working with, and the fact that he said working with American intelligence that to me is very different than working with the government to, you know, achieve a certain end. That is, I think that's arguing, you know, the, the, the meddling of the U.S. intelligence, which, by the way, happens every day all over the world. But if, you know, Russia has a certain, you know, the point is that they call meddling anything all the time that they do everywhere else in the world. The Clinton, because I was working so much with the American intelligence at that time. Clinton wanted to buy me out and so to buy out the senate president bribing i remember that i was hitting very hard on several fronts today show good morning america and once i was in nightline with senator Dole. and uh, to try to appease me he, he sent me bill richardson who was actually congressman at that time and I spent four hours with Bill Richardson in my office in Port-au-Prince explaining to him how they should not invade Haiti, 
and how this was a bad idea to return Aristide to power. And I even mentioned that President Reagan in 1986 had sent one airplane to pick up Duvalier. I said, that's the way to do it. You want to get rid of those generals? Send an airplane. I will help them into that airplane. So we spent four hours. I discussed it with Bill Richardson because I said to Bill, take the message back to President Clinton. I know you are here because he sent you. A week later, after my conversation with Bill Richardson, the American embassy called me, as it was often the case, and they said, President Clinton has a messenger for you. I said, send him over. He came, did not give me his name, but told me, Mr. Sensory, you join our movement. You side with Bill Clinton in this invasion and will make you the richest man in Haiti. Think about that. Now, you could always argue he's lying, but the evidence is overwhelming. And the, the sad thing is, I don't think anybody even disputes. Everyone knows this. People just, for, for different political reasons, choose to omit it, ignore it, dismiss it. But this is, they've been, I mean, again, I always reference the, the, the two men from Boston that presented this in front of Congress about the pay, pay for play in regard to the Clinton Foundation. I mean, it was scathing. They had, they had the receipts. Not only did nothing happen, I mean, they didn't even bring it up again after that. It just went away. I said, sir, tell President Clinton for me, Bernard Sensorik is not for sale. I have principle and I love my country. A week later, by executive order, Clinton revoked my visa. See that? I was then a resident of the United States. I am now a citizen of the United States. So you, you're playing with someone's life or so you revoke their visa because you didn't take the bribe we offered. That's your government right there. This is how it's been in Haiti. The Clinton went there after the invasion. They started a cellular company called Fusion International. To make a long story short, now it's Digicel who is taking over and his friend Dennis O'Brien has, has given millions to the Clinton Foundation. In 2010, the earthquake of Haiti, not only American taxpayers, but the whole world has given billions of dollars to the Clinton Foundation for the Haitians. Not only, not even 2% of that money went back to Haiti. So Mr. Trump, we are asking you. Not even 2%. And I have some articles I'll give you to go more deep on that. That I, Some I wrote myself back then. The amount of money that was siphoned off. I mean, they, they got a fraction, a fraction of a fraction of what was donated. You know, Wycliffe Sean was helping. Who knows whether that was intentional or not. Driving up all these donations. And the Clinton Foundation stole almost all of it. Nobody went to jail for that. People died because of it, though. Begging you, the Haitian community will side with you if one day... You ask Hillary Clinton publicly to disclose the audit of all the money they have stolen from Haiti in 2010 after the earthquake. He's speaking to Donald Trump, right? And he's saying, everybody in Haiti will support you if you commit to doing this, which he pretended he would and then fell short on. And this guy spoke up later and said he did not follow through. I thought he was a different person. I'll show you that next. So the point is, the guy who was saying, lock her up, 
Not only did he have the opportunity to put this person in prison, he had people begging him with all the receipts to expose other aspects of her criminality. And not only did he not do that, he was making friends with her later. Oh, she's a good person. We don't need to go after that. Remember that? It's amazing the kind of stuff that Trump supporters ignored to continue supporting him. For those just tuning in, they're all dumb. They're all crazy. Left, right, Biden, Trump, they're all crazy. Don't take that as some kind of side point that I somehow secretly support the Democrats. Or They're all crazy. Your government is out to get you, guys. That's the reality. Haiti is a very poor country. Haiti needs defenders. You said you will champion our cause. We welcome you, sir. And we, we will work with you. But please, ask publicly Hillary Clinton during your next debate to publish the audit of all the money they have stolen from Haiti. Yes. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Didn't happen. So here's what he said later. So that was 2000. That was 2016, I believe. I already closed it. Hold on. Yeah, 2016. So 2019. Dissolution Haitian American voters not sure about Trump. So just this is the point. The Haitian-born Republican activist was president of the Haitian Senate in 94. That's him. Officially obtaining U.S. citizenship in 2006, as he was discussing. Sansarik was dedicated to establishing democracy in his native country. He said he was hopeful in 2016 when Trump, as a Republican nominee, visited Miami's Little Haiti. Trump claimed then that he would be the greatest champion and hold former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton accountable for what he saw as her failures in the aftermath of the deadly earthquake impacting at least 3 million people in the island nation. He then said Sansarik had taken Trump at his word when the promise was made, but now feels that he has fallen short. Quote, my understanding was that Trump would be a better man. He would do something for Haiti. We all put our chances on Trump. Got all the votes. Sure enough. But my heart can no longer tell me to support him. He has done absolutely nothing for Haiti. I must just sit here. I must just sit this election out. Pretty sad. So that this is, first of all, the reality of how obvious this is, the two-party illusion of it all. Think about the political win it would have been under the perception that Trump was not part of the government, but rather the Republican side of this, if he would have exposed all of this. But of course not. Now, this is 2017. I wrote this at the time. The doctor who exposed the Clinton Foundation corruption in Haiti, the same thing he was just pointing out, found dead. And I've gone over this a few times. He, wrote, he, he was speaking up about this. He was sending emails. Yeah, as it says here, in 2010, the doctor decided to send an email to a, con a confidant detailing this affront to the Haitian people, which ended up being forwarded to Cheryl Mills, of all people, who at the time was chief of staff to none other than Hillary Clinton. The doctor's correspondence, which has been provided by WikiLeaks, the link is right there, was highly critical of how the situation with Haiti was being handled. Disaster management on the ground was non-existent. Cheerios and the tarmac are not getting it done. These patients, which clearly need to be... Uh, which clearly would be savable if good care would be urgently provided, which it wasn't. Once we arrived, we saw a severely damaged hospital, no running water. Think about that. Millions and tens and hundreds of millions of dollars flying across for this. They don't even have running water. Only limited electrical power, a generator. Surgery is being performed in an equivalent of a large storage closet where amputations perform with hacksaws. 
This facility could not nearly accommodate the equipment nor the expertise to treat the volume of injuries they saw. They saw scores of patients with pus dripping out of open extremities, fractures with crushed injury with and crushed injuries. Some wounds were already ridden with maggots. About a third of these victims were children. The entire hospital smelled of infected, rotting limbs and death. Later on, she said they would judge their surgical progress by the diminishment of the stench. He says, our naivety, we didn't expect that the two anesthesia machines would not work, that there would be only one cautery available in the entire hospital to stop bleeding, that an operating room sterilizer fit only instruments the size of a cigar box, that there would be no sterile saline, no functioning uh, fluoros- fluoroscopy machine, no blood for transfusions, no ability to do lab work. And the only local staff was a ragtag group of volunteer health providers who, like us, had made it there on their own. Until the departure, he said they witnessed pallets of Cheerios and dry goods just sitting on the tarback, helping nobody. Yet our flight of critical medical equipment and personnel had been canceled, and the equipment that did get through was hijacked. This was the reality, guys. This guy died, was killed. They argue he stabbed himself in the chest with a knife. Like, think about that. I mean, that's about as dumb as arguing Gary Webb shot himself twice in the head which is still what the what the establishment actually argues the truth is. That this medical professional, knowing how impossible it would be to stab a knife from, from your in your own hand through your chest plate, by the way, apparently they say, oh, yeah, he stabbed himself, in it, while his child, by the way, was still with him. I mean, it's, it's, it's unreal. This is a common story, as you guys know. Sad reality is this is what happened, and your government... Groups that are supposed to be holding people accountable, nothing happened at all. Here's another one, 2017. Haiti official exposed the Clinton Foundation, found dead. I mean, the number is unreal. People dying in the most random ways that get deemed suicide who all just so happen to be calling out stuff like this. And this is an interesting one. Ben Swan exposes the truth about U.S. foreign aid and the Clinton Foundation's Haitian fraud. I'm going to play this for you. I wasn't planning on playing the whole thing, but what's funny about this is I I, we, I published this, and this was from uh, his reality check. But I went to get it, and it was gone, which not surprising because his channel got deleted and so on. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go find it. Right? Nowhere. I literally couldn't find this. Try it for yourself. The actual video, I think, was called uh, what was it again? Yeah, I, I've got it right here. It's I, I actually I was able to. Whoops. That's not where I want to, oh, there we go. I want to open it here. So I was able to download it onto Sovereign, which is, by the way, it was called Reality Check. If Haiti is a, you know, it was a, for plug your ears, ear, ear, earmuffs for the children, shithole country, who is really to blame? That's when Trump said that, remember? Now you type in that and you search for it. I mean, my God, I, I looked at BitChute, Odyssey. I couldn't find it anywhere, which is just strange. And so I had to literally find this. On the archive, I had to find the YouTube video link, which in and of itself was difficult, then find the archive, then find this video, and it still wasn't able to download it, so I had to just screen record the damn thing and upload it to Sovereign, because my website wouldn't let me upload it. Now, I'm not saying all of that is because they don't want you to see this, but my God, that seems a little strange, doesn't it? So I thought, you know what? We're going to play the whole damn thing. It's only eight minutes, because maybe they just don't want you to see it. But either way, it's a great... This is kind of great work that Ben Swan was doing before he got basically you know, became persona non grata after he dared to point out the legitimacy of the claims around the conversation that was deemed Pizzagate. Not that there was a lot of BS around that whole thing, but there was very valid points that were discussed with all that that he decided to break down and show you the validity of. 
And he did with the, with the receipts and everything. But of course, that was not what you were supposed to hear. So he got boxed out. But I'm glad it happened because it's something we, we need people like Ben Swan on the side of the truth. But let's watch this. Showing you yet again how they just straight up stole money from dying people and acted like they were the heroes and never got any accountability for it. Well, it's been a couple of weeks, but I had to take this one on. President Trump reportedly refers to African nations. Well, it's been a couple of weeks, but I had to take this one on. President Trump reportedly refers to African nations, as well as the island nation of Haiti, as a shithole. The media, both on the left and the right, lose their collective minds. But here's the problem. While media and politicians want to fight about Haiti, nobody seems to care that Haitians have been ripped off by American foreign aid and politicians for years. Let's give it a reality check you won't get anywhere else. Reality check with Ben Swan, powered by not recorded. Trump, they were reported, but not recorded. Here's what the Washington Post was the first to claim. President Trump discussed protecting immigrants from Haiti, El Salvador, and African countries as part of a bipartisan immigration deal, according to several people briefed on the meeting. Why are we having all these people from shithole countries come here, Trump said, referring to countries mentioned by the lawmakers. Why do we need more Haitians? Trump asked, according to people familiar with the meeting, take them out. Well, by now, you know, the media lost its collective mind. See, on the left, all they could talk about is what a racist savage President Trump is. Listen. Well, they went to make a deal with the devil and they discovered two things. He wasn't ready to make a deal, but he really is the devil. This remark by the president of the United States smacks of blatant racism. I mean, it just adds to all of the emotion and it adds to the horror. And then on the right, it was an effort to defend the use of the word, with commentators insisting it's really okay because that's what Haiti really is. Lawmakers in both parties came together in grave agreement that it was unfortunate, unacceptable, indeed threatening, that President Trump would refer to poor and dangerous countries as, in effect, poor and dangerous. This was leaked by Democrats, his political opponents, because they thought it would hurt him. I don't think it did hurt him. Um, So he's using salty language to make an obvious point. Even if he did say it, which we still don't know, this outrage is phony. Lefties, you can't have it both ways. You can't claim we need to let everyone in to protect them from terrible conditions in their home countries, then turn around and tell us we're coming from great and stable places. Sorry, pick one. Well, of course, the problem with all this is that the debate hasn't been about Haiti. It's been about Trump. The argument is over whether Donald Trump is a racist or whether he is right. And there's an obvious way the two-party illusion pits you against each other about something that's tangential to the real point they're trying to keep away from your view. And we end up diving into the conversation about whether Trump is racist around Haiti's conversation instead of the reality that they're all allowing Haiti to be completely exploited. That's how that works. But that argument robs the Haitian people of the debate that we should be having. The debate over why that country has remained in abject poverty and with an unemployment rate of over 40%, even with billions of dollars and reinvestment flowing there. Reality check here. Those billions of dollars, they never got to the Haitian people. And that's the discussion we should be having. See, it was January of 2010 when a massive 7.0 earthquake struck the island of Haiti. It killed an estimated 220,000 people, leveling 100,000 homes and leaving 1.5 million people destitute. Some 13.3 billion was pledged by international donors 
for Haiti's recovery. Now, at the time, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. Her husband, former President Bill Clinton, he was appointed co-chairman of the Interim Haiti Recovery Commission, the IHRC, along with the Haitian Prime Minister. So what happened? Well, of the $13.3 billion pledged, some $9 billion actually came in as the total international funding. It's an incredible amount of money. The problem is that money was wasted. It was mismanaged, and it went just about everywhere except to the actual Haitian organizations. And I, I do not think that's by accident, guys. That That's by design. That's how this is supposed to work. Now, there's plenty of theories about, you know, earthquakes being d- engineered and, you know, w- whether or not you think something was designed to happen or did happen because they made it. The point is simply that this is how these vultures, or better, for lack of a better word, this is how they operate, right? You see the, these people were devastated by this earthquake and their first thought is, oh my God, we can exploit that to hell, heaven, however you want to look at it. We can exploit that as far as we've ever exploited. We can make all this money off the backs of their suffering and then even get convince some people that we helped them. That's how this works. And of course, this is what they did, right? And so whether or not, you know, and this is, you could, and the reason I said that first point is because the, in many cases, these things are executed, whether it's a war, my, weaponized migration, destabilization, regime changes, these things are executed and then secondarily, taken advantage of us aid comes in to quote help them is that what actually happens well this is this is us aid right here not explicitly and by itself my point is this is what happens as corbett's written about the ngo trojan horses what i mean we we really as just honest and free-thinking people of the world need to stay we need to be honest and open and explicit about the understanding of what these people and these governments these institutions truly are it's just time to stop pulling. It's time to no to stop pulling punches, whether it's about the U.S. creating funding and 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 in, and using the proxy army of ISIS, or whether it's about the illegal occupations of the different countries, or whatever these things are. The reality we need to stop pulling punches about. In fact, on this chart from the BBC, you see that of the six billion dollars that came in from bilateral and multilateral donors, eighty nine point eight percent went to non-Haitian organizations. Some 580 million went to the Haitian government and around one half of 1% went to Haitian organizations. So right there, the point is that you have 580 million that went to the government, which you could argue is what is what's supposed to happen. But typically, especially in this kind of situation where you know that there's a puppet sitting there put there by the United States, that's just a, you know, that does not translate to helping the people. But then then specifically Haitian organizations, 0.06. In fact, I believe it was actually 0.6. I think there was an update in his bottom that was a typo they put out there on the screen. Regardless, a fraction of a fraction, 9 billion ends up being 0.6% of that. That actually goes to people on the ground. While Clinton and her lackeys and the foundation itself is swimming in revenue. The vast majority of the funding went to UN agencies, international aid groups, private contractors, and donor countries' own civilian and military agencies. Now, a lot of people, of course, have blamed the Clintons personally for- That's why suffering and tragedy is big business. What happened in Haiti. Perhaps some of that criticism is unfair, and perhaps it's not. For instance, thanks to diplomatic cables released by WikiLeaks, we know this, that one U.S. envoy described the value to contractors who were eager to cash in as a gold rush. According to the BBC, in email exchanges with top Clinton Foundation officials, a senior aide to Mrs. Clinton, who was then Secretary of State, kept an eye out for those identified with the abbreviations 
FOB or Friends of Bill Clinton or WJC VIPs need to flag people when they are friends of WJC. Wrote a this is pay to play right here, right? I mean, you're get, you're allowing these people to come in with their money and act like they're helping when really they're siphoning money and resources. And, and th- this is what they do. And don't miss the parallels to what we're seeing right now with the with Gaza, with many number of different situations, right? There there are people that are trying to to act like they're here to help when really they're taking advantage. Senior State Department official who was vetting incoming offers of assistance through the Clinton Foundation. So who are some of those friends who have gotten sweetheart deals, at least appeared to? Well, according to the National Review, the Clinton Foundation selected Clayton Homes, a construction company owned by Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, to build temporary shelters in Haiti. Buffett is an active member of the Clinton Global Initiative, who donated generously to the Clintons as well as the Clinton Foundation. The contract was supposed to be given through normal United Nations bidding process, with the deal going to the lowest bidder who met the project standards. UN officials said, however, that the contract was never competitively bid for. Again, according to the National Review, the Clintons also funneled some $10 million to a firm called Innovita, headed by Clinton donor Claudio Osorio. Innovita's application was fast-tracked and approved in two weeks. The company, however, defaulted on the loan and never built any houses. An investigation revealed that Osorio had diverted company funds to pay for his Miami Beach mansion, his Maserati, and his Colorado ski chalet. He also pleaded guilty to wire fraud and money laundering in 2013. He's currently serving a 12-year prison term on fraud charges related to that loan. Now, there are many other stories just like those, but perhaps the biggest mess in all of Haiti's recovery, or lack thereof, was what the Clinton Foundation touted as a signature project, a garment factory known as the Carcoal Industrial Park. The project was funded by the U.S. government. It cost hundreds of millions of dollars in taxpayer money. It was the largest single allocation of U.S. relief aid. The foundation, working with the Clinton State Department, helped to arrange a U.S.-subsidized deal with the Haitian government to build a $300 million factory complex in 2012. Is that what Haitian people want? Like, think about this. You're in the middle of a catastrophe, right? People are trying to rebuild their lives, and you're talking about building a massive factory for jobs, and you'll see the worst part after that. Like, assuming they're even going to get those jobs, which they didn't. Why is that? This is like coming in when people are starving in Gaza and going, here's a COVID-19 shot. Does that make sense? Like you, you're, you're starving to death and you're giving them, it's just, ugh, this is the kind of BS that we deal with and, and it's fake altruism. And the reality, as you're about to see, had nothing to do with helping people. Now, several hundred farmers were evicted from their land to make way for that 600 acre manufacturing site. Oh, that's the other part too, is that you had to remove actual farmers. Think about that overlap today. People that actually are helping the local area to build this factory, which later did not help those people. The plant also began producing clothes for retailers such as Old Navy, Walmart, and Target. And Mr. Clinton declared 100,000 jobs would be created in short order. But the Carcoal Industrial Park only created 8,000 jobs. And I'm willing to bet you that they largely did not go to the people around the surrounding area, which is almost always what happens. Now, in addition, Carcoal was supposed to include 25,000 homes for Haitian employees. But in the end, the Government Accountability Office reports only about 6,000 homes were actually built. And of course, and I remember reading reports about how terrible those were falling apart, like, you know, and this is what happens when you don't have people bidding. They just they don't need to up. People don't care, especially when you know that you're working through this broken system where nobody cares because the people above you are the ones breaking the law far more than you are. So you cut every possible corner you can. The criticism goes deeper than simply not creating jobs. South Korean textile giant SAE Trading Co., which was the main employer at the facility, donated between fifty dollars and $100,000 to the Clinton Foundation. All right, that's pay to play right there.
So what you need to know is that the failure in Haiti, as much as some people would like to put it solely on the Clintons, is not their failure alone. It is the failure of the entire U.S. foreign aid landscape. Exactly. You see, donor nations and private contractors control the money, and in many cases, they funnel it to projects and to contractors and to organizations that align with their interests and not the interests of the people in need. Usually at the expense of the people in need. Maybe the best example of how this worked in Haiti was like this. According to the GAO, the cost to build one house in the post-earthquake relief effort, $33,000, because it was paid to outside contractors. Right. That is five times what it cost one nonprofit called Mission of Hope per house using local contractors. That's the whole point right there. If you wanted to help people, you could help people. You're exploiting their suffering for your benefit. And then, I mean, at the very, like, you think of, you, it's very, think of it like this. Why wouldn't you just meet your obligations? You're still benefiting. You're still reaping all the profits from doing and all these different political deals. But even then, they, they just, they just don't even complete it anyway. Like you, you promise 100,000 homes and you do six. You, you could have done 100,000 homes and wildly profited. The point is, it's not, it's, it's not even just about profit. It's it, it, every possible way. These people exploit and steal and murder, rape, and rob, and they never get account get held accountable for it. And it's it's all documented. You got presidents of the Senate speaking up. You got people dying left and right. Nobody cares because your government is a part of it. So when the media is outraged that Trump uses words that seem to dismiss the people of Haiti, but expresses virtually no outrage over how the people of Haiti were actually robbed of what was promised them in the aftermath of that devastating earthquake, then you have to question. But their outrage is truly over. That's okay. reality. How about that? How about you consider that in the concept of Tucker Carlson and the Putin interview, right? Is there out, does their outrage seem genuine? Clearly not. I think it's a manufactured entity to get you distracted from, you know, the real stories happening beneath the big story that Carlson's being censored. That's how that works. Now, back to the point about Haiti. <clears throat> we, in the, moving forward in the timeline, 2019. And this was Alexander Rubenstein when he was writing for, uh, well, I think he still does even, Mint Press News. And we talked about this a lot at the time. Remember this? Haitian authorities arrested Americans, CIA, transporting a cache of weapons amid the uprising. The point is, at this time in 2019, you're, this is, we're, we're getting into the time frame. Oh, actually, no, hold on before I get there. This was a point where we, and we talked about this numerous times. Here, here, here's the images you might remember. These were the Americans that were caught. Remember this? Trying to hide their faces and so on. They spoke up and they got, they eventually got them taken back to the United States under the argument that they were going to be held accountable, but nothing ultimately happened. So Americans were caught trying to bring weapons to their proxy forces to continue to help what they were doing in, in, in Haiti. 2019, U.S. aid exposed as regime change ploy. Now, this was where I believe this was the article. This was me covering that. So you can watch the show version of this. <clears throat> I think this is how this always works. And again, just at the same time, 2019, Bolton sides with U.S. puppet government in Haiti. Big surprise. And Wiener out early. <laughs> that was, the as you might expect, uh, what's his name? Uh, I forget his first name now. Anyway, he's not important. 2019, U.S. mercenaries caught in Haiti. And I covered this as well on this show. Actually, yeah, this was a show I covered. But the point is the same. Just showing you guys can go back and watch these if you'd like to watch the work we were covering at the time. So in the, at the point, and this is 2021, 
just to show you that even the corporate media is acknowledging the obvious history of exploitation. This is at the, this is 2021, the assassination of the president. It was uh, Moise at the time. There's one that, that you, there's overlaps with Trump at that point where he's meeting with him has sent the country into shock and turmoil, sparking discussions in the international community on how to help bring stability. But Haiti's long history of interventions by foreign powers can't be ignored, nor can the fact that often they have been made whether or not Haiti itself benefited. I mean, you could read this. It's, the point is just the general sentiment to be aware that we're all, that they're being exploited. We all know it, but we don't really talk about it because we're not supposed to. So here is uh, um, Mick Wallace speaking about this in 2022. So we still haven't even gotten to the current, what's currently happening, but this is all very relevant to the, 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 you know, the escalation of this. And these are just points. There's so much to actually get into about actual, you know, elections manipulated and how, but the point is to try to bring you rapidly up to where we are now. And the reality is right now, Ariel Henry is a, is a U.S. puppet. I mean, I think this is abundantly clear. As somebody who has been manipulated into place and the people, like they have been in multiple examples of the past, are not, are aware of that and haven't been, and are now taking advantage of the reality that the U.S. government has spread so thin to potentially take advantage of that. But here's 2022, so two years before this, where he's speaking up about the same issue and the same thing the U.S. government was doing then they're doing now. Thousands of people from Haiti have been protesting against the U.S.-installed regime of Ariel Henry. Henri, excuse me. Now, the point is, if it was reversed, like in any other situation, Syria or right now with Gaza, protesters are terrorists fighting for destabilization should you not like their cause. But if you agree with their cause or at least think it'll benefit you as the U.S. government— well, then they're freedom fighters and we support their cause for free democracy and free speech, right? It, it's just, it's, and the reality being that they've sided with the worst, most vile people you can imagine and acting like they're supporting their free speech while they have completely ignored people that are truly fighting for independence and against one of their puppets. I mean, it's just constant. So the point obviously is that they don't have anything sacred. They don't care about what they pretend they're fighting for. They just are fighting for their agendas. And people like Mick have been screaming about this for as long as you can you know, long as he's been doing this. Now the puppet leader is calling for foreign military intervention to crush the protests. And the U.S. have been looking for backing at, at the U.N. Security Council for same. Right. So think about that. So you got Henri, or I said Henry, which looks like Henry. Henri, the president, been put in place by the United States government, speak, calling on international forces to come in his country and suppress a protest. So it's it's it's. Again, same point I just made. That you can just see how clearly it goes whichever way they want it to. If if Russia was, you know, suppressing protests, like you know what that would be framed as, even if you could then later prove hypothetically that they were being pushed to do so by outside forces. Like with China's conversation and the different examples we've shown you of the CIA literally driving these kind of protests. Doesn't mean that there aren't organic parts of those protests, though. Still being manipulated, though. The last thing the people of Haiti need now is another foreign military intervention called in by a despised leader that doesn't even have a proper mandate to govern. The people of Haiti had their own solution to the crisis. It's called the Montana Agreement. A commission was set up in August last year by a wide range of civil society groups and they signed an agreement and it was to be implemented, begun in February. 
But the US and the UN and others blocked it. The Haitians people, they need an end to foreign interference. They've been interfered with for 200 years. They're not allowed to think independent. The West has destroyed the place. They've done everything to cripple the place for years. And now they certainly need an end to foreign interference, not more foreign boots on the ground. We said we were interested in sovereignty when Ukraine was invaded by Russia. Are we not interested in sovereignty when it comes to Haiti? Does that not count because it doesn't suit U.S. imperialism? Exactly. That's exactly the point. Right. So we can literally watch the progression of this where they will suppress momentum from movements or, or potential legislation that is actually stemming from what the people provably want and, and supporting entities that are willing to ex, you know, allow foreign outsiders to do whatever they want at the expense of the country. Naming that, you know, capital or whatever that whatever they want to frame it as to make it seem like it's some kind of agreed upon outset uh, outcome. As opposed to exploiting those people. Here, the, the poll lady pointing out this in 2022, October 16th, the U.S. is drafting a U.N. Security Council resolution. So again, the overlap all of this with the, uh, the absurd hypocrisy of the way they're dealing with what's going on in Israel or Gaza right now. They're drafting a U.N. Security Council resolution, which they haven't done a single time so far, what Israel's doing, to deploy multinational rapid action forces to Haiti to stop massive protests happening since August. So they're, they're pr- trying to deploy through, legal, through the UN forces to stop popular protests against their puppet. Haitian demand resignation of the US-installed puppet Ariel Henry and a foreign interference and, and a lack of foreign interference in their elections. Canadian and US warplanes had already landed in Haiti when the supposed military aid had even been approved. Their aim is to quickly disperse nationwide protests with force and restore democracy. With force. Which is, by the way, what they've done in places like Venezuela and, and blamed on Maduro or in places like Syria and blamed on Assad or in places like Ukraine and blamed on whoever they wanted to. Every one of these examples, and I mean this, guys, have been proven proven to have been executed by the u.s government in in, in the maidan square they, I, what was it the uh the estonian uh foreign minister i believe spoke on and so i've played the video for you countless times on the record with kathy ashton saying well we know this was conducted by them and we and nobody talked and she goes yeah yeah so they know this stuff in syria it's the exact same point they blame they they execute their own people, which was proven, and blame it on Assad. And that's not to say that Assad's not capable of something you might think he could do outside of what, you know, that he can't kill somebody. Of course, any president, any government, I believe, is capable of any number of things. But that's a proven reality, despite what you may think about him. Or examples like we saw in Venezuela, where they were literally caught red-handed, throwing Molotov cocktails on the very thing they then said Maduro was stopping. And that was another conversation about humanitarian aid. Remember that? They need the aid and we're sending it. Oops, the truck gets opened and it's a bunch of barbed wire and wood. Oh, you got lying. And they say, they just move this, move on from the story. You remember that story where they literally had trucks full of barbed wire and they were trying to bomb them with Molotov cocktails. They blamed it on Maduro and it turns out on video, they were throwing them from the Guaido side. I mean, it's just over and over and over. In this case, they're already deploying military before they even have the legal approval to do so. Haiti is the first free country in America, she writes, American Hemisphere, which was born out of a slave revolt. Excuse me. 
In 2004, French ambassador admitted on the record that U.S. and France, can't talk right now, and France orchestrated a coup against Haiti's elected president, Mr. Aristide. Now, we've talked about this as well. It's amazing how they can just, in passing, just kind of, you know, wax about how, oh, yeah, you know, we conducted a coup. Sort of like we can kind of like distantly, oh, yeah, Operation Ajax, we overthrew Iran, but that was a different time. No, it's the same damn stuff happening today. That was illegal then. It's illegal now. I mean, that was 2004. They did this. They put these people in place. The president, President Aristide was removed illegally because he had dared to ask France to pay reparations for looting Haiti as the price of its freedom in 1804 during its freedom struggle. And now often, another interesting point, by the way, is that, think, you know, just because, like, right now, like, for example, we'll get to uh, uh, Congo in a second, Democratic Republic of Congo. Just because somebody might actually be, like, let's say they put somebody in place, like we saw with, uh, what's a good example? Even Guaido, even though he didn't come into power, the point is they can be the guy and then rapidly just no longer be what they need anymore and they just drop you like a bad habit. Or you may do something that they don't want anymore. Or you may grow out of wanting them to be supporting you anymore. And all of a sudden, you start doing things for your benefit and that's not what they want, so you're gone, right? So the point is that there can be people they put in place that they just outlive their usefulness. So think about like that as well. But it says, uh, during its freedom struggle, Haiti was asked for a huge sum of money from French colonizers. It says, ever since 2004 coup, the U.S. and Western allies have been in full control of Haiti. Quote, over the past years, we've seen, we've seen in Canada, the U.S. and France really taking control of the country, of the political agenda in the country, right? And, the, and, this is, and, and it's been chaos ever since. Now, when, you know, in, the, in our Western political sphere, we just point and go, yeah, those bad countries, they can't get their stuff under control. No, you maintain this kind of destabilization so you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, all the time, including completely outsourcing everything, or that's not the right word, you know, just siphoning off everything from this country for the benefit of your corporate interests and your country itself. It says, now with worsening living conditions in Haiti, this is 2022, people have been demanding elections as they are fed up with Western neocolonialism in the form of a puppet government, which, by the way, they continue to, like, I think specifically in both cases we're talking about today, the elections were supposed to come and they just didn't. X number of reasons, but we'll get more in depth in regard to Congo, but people are upset with that, and there's always some kind of an argument. It says shameful Western media is brainwashing to support military intervention, occupation of Haiti. They were doing the same thing in 2022. A recent finding has shown that the nation of Haiti have some of the largest undiscovered oil reserves in the world. Surprise, surprise. Now, I don't, I don't, it's never just about that, but that does play a factor. They were estimated to be even larger than Venezuela. Now, here's the Washington Post in 2022. The U.S., of course, backs sending international forces to Haiti. Of course they do. Now, this is 2022, October 15th. JP points out, let's remember that Haitian people have been protesting nonstop at this point in October 2022 for eight weeks against both the UN and US puppet government and that government's recent removal of fuel subsidies, which increased inflation by 30%. These protests have been hidden as the media focuses on the gangs, which I think is an obvious part of both sides of the, the two conversations we're having about these, that they will utilize and even seed the and fund and these kind of entities like the moderate rebel aspect, which then, by the way, could eventually become another entity that could take power should they no longer want this person in control. If that's the way it's working, I mean. 
Now, Al McLeod pointed out again, October 2022, the Washington Post editorial board just called for U.S. military action against Haiti. It literally says, yes, intervene in Haiti and push for democracy. I mean, that's just, that's just, that's absurd. That's the kind of stuff we see today. So violate the democratic process for democracy, right? That, isn't that exactly what they say in this country today? We have to suspend democracy to save democracy. And these people are just parodies of themselves. And again, this meme, open up, democracy's here. In 2022, we covered this at the time, Haiti regime change, right? And this is this is where it was upcoming to the next op, 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 you know, opportunity for them to step in and put their own people in control when they were out, like, tired of what was happening. And here's the New York Times in 2022, a failed state in regard to Haiti, an aid trap, the modern world's first nation born of a slave revolt. We just published an investigation, it says, of an overlooked part of the history, examining what might have been if Haiti had not been looted since its birth. Who do you think is doing that? You can read there. And this is at a time, you know, 2022. I I, I argued these entities are always using truth in their own benefit at some points in time. Maybe this person thought they were, but they're talking about at least this point that that I think is important to this. That the U.S. and foreign Western powers have been looting this country in every way they could since its inception. And then we turn around and act like they can't get their S together. Dan Cohen, bringing this into the day, writes, as the UNM, at U.S. empire overextends itself in Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, Haiti is on the brink of a revolution, ready to oust the U.S.-backed puppet regime of Ariel Henry. And he cites this article from somebody who I'm, I wasn't familiar with, but I'm following now. It's a good article. Haiti on the brink. It says the government of de facto Prime Minister Ariel Henry is completely illegitimate, ineffective, and unpopular. The U.S. empire is preoccupied and overextended in contending with crises in in Ukraine, Israel, Palestine, and Yemen. Conflict with Iran, Lebanon, or China may erupt at any moment. But above all, the Haitian masses are fed up, hungry, angry, and ready to begin down the rocky road of revolution all by by all indications. In other words, Haiti's subjective conditions are ripe. He says, to start with, last Friday, January 26th, rather, delivered two huge legal defeats for the U.S. empire. The first was the ICJ ruling in favor of South Africa's case that Israel was committing genocide with its unrelenting assault on Gaza, which has killed close to 30,000 Palestinians, mostly women and children. Haitians took note that the tide appears to be turning in such international bodies, which Washington has long controlled. We all see this right now. It says, by the, by, but the second legal defeat was the ruling by Kenya's high court. And you may not have heard about this, that Kenyan police could not be constitutionally deployed to lead the Washington-devised multinational security support mission to Haiti. Endorsed by the UN on October 2nd, 2023, right before October 7th, which is pretty interesting. The point is that they created the multinational security support mission to be able to take Kenya's police, as well as it appears with um, B- the Bahamas and other entities involved with what they call the MSS, to basically essentially invade <laughs> Haiti and take control of the government yet again. But the point was, the big defeat was when the Kenyan police basically said they weren't going to allow that. He, But they will apparently appeal. Now, this was the Kenyan court said they wouldn't allow it. The police wanted this, but they will. the Kenyan president will apparently appeal the ruling. But the point really is that right now, there will not be any Kenyan cops deployed into Haiti anytime soon. But it says after the ruling, 
the MM, the multinational security support mission participant Bahamas also demobilized with National Security Minister Wayne Monroe saying that his troops will not be deployed until the Bahamian government knows exactly what his soldiers would be doing. Now, I argue if there wasn't a kind of dis, dis, uh, dismantling of this because of different, mo different, you know, like the Kenyan court, the Bahamas wouldn't have had the, I don't know, the courage to do that. Basically, they just stood up and go, well, are you, like, what do you think they didn't know before? They were a part of this already. It was all going forward. They, there was no indication that they knew what they'd be doing. All of a sudden, because other parts are pulling back, they spoke up too, and they were like, we're not going to do it until we know what's going on, which seems to suggest that they kind of know. We're, you're using our entities as a battering ram against the people you don't like in Haiti. But it says on Tuesday, January 30th, Henri asked the High Council for the Transition, or the HTC, for a meeting at noon. The body simply refused his request, which is not a good sign. The High Council for the Transition was apparently something put in place in regard to the transition, which just kind of became the norm, which is, you know, how these things tend to work. It says to make matters worse. And again, it's, it's like, kind of like the de facto ruling body. But it says to make matters worse, there is a good chance that Guy Philippe, the former, quote, rebel leader and senator-elect who just spent seven years in U.S. jails, will finally arrive in Port-au-Prince this week perhaps as early as January 31st. Since his repatriation to Haiti from the United States prisons in November, Philippe, or Felipe, however you say that, has been, called for, has been calling for revolution, organizing a militia, exhorting Haitians in rallies around the country on the social media platforms to rise up against, quote, the system and oust Ariel Henry and to fight against imperialism and the M M MSS's deployment. In response, and that was, again, from basically the U.S.-driven invasion, essentially. In response, a growing number of demonstrations, strikes, barricades, and civil disobedience actions have gripped Haiti. Now, this is why I brought this up before. Now, my, my gut tells me that this is organic, that these are people, and it doesn't, by the way, that never always, it doesn't always mean that it will end up in a positive way. Maybe these people are just as corrupt, and, you know, that's, you, you never know. The point, though, is that this feels like the organic pushback against outside powers controlling what Haiti's always been doing. My concern, though, is that point I made about controlling the loss. This is a guy that just came from se seven years in U.S. prisons. God only knows what was done, what the CIA convinced him to do. You know, that kind of point. Or nothing. Or he's here fighting for freedom. But I just worry about that, seeing as how he came right out of these prisons and suddenly has kind of become a leading factor of this whole thing, which, by the way, was already happening before he got there. See what I mean? See, I'm just worried that that might be their effort to guide the loss in the way that might still benefit them. Just something to consider. Again, if I were to pick, my gut tells me that this is him fighting against the powers that have kept him in prison for seven years. I just always like to give you the alternative possibilities. But it says almost the entire political class has fixed February 7th, so yesterday, as the deadline by which Henri must step down, which I, as far as I can tell, he did not, because he promised as much when his government launched the HTC on December 21st, 2022. Again, that's again, was the kind of point about where all that effort from the U.S. side culminated. Now, almost all of Haiti and its uh, diaspora, including long, silent figures like celebrity Wyclef Jean, are calling on him to resign. On January 23rd, 2024, just, just last month, the official government journal, uh, Le Montier, I believe, announced the firing of Jean-Till Joseph 
as the Environment Ministry's National Agency for Protected Areas Director General, who directs the agents of the Protected Areas Surveillance Brigade, or the BSAP. In recent months, the BSAP has actually grown, and it's not like it sounds, it's actually like a militia group, has grown from a few dozen agents to become a large militia of over 15,000 troops. And according to some estimates, perhaps two or three times that number. In the Southeast Department alone, there are 20,200 BSAP members, according to an unofficial spokesperson. It says the BSAP troops, which in videos can be seen assembling in formations in towns across Haiti, ranging from the cruise ship destination uh, Labadee in the north to the dusty central plateau town of Las Cahobas, are not loyal to Ariel's government, but to Jantel Joseph personally, which is interesting. And this was the, again, the person that was fired from the Environmental Ministry National Agency Protected Areas Director General. But the point is, it's not loyal. So this massive militia group around the area is not loyal to the U.S. puppet. Not surprising. Now, it says BSAP is still a coherent force under Jantel, according to a source working closely with Joseph Jantel. Now, Joseph Jantel rejects his dismissal in regard to the position he was in, saying he was appointed to the post by President Moise and can only be removed by a presidential decree, not that of a de facto prime minister put in place by the U.S. government. I added that last part. Although most of the BSAP troops are unpaid, unarmed, and minimally trained, which, by the way, to me, is why I think they're not influenced by outside powers, or if, if you believe that's the case. Unpaid, unarmed, like, so it's an entity that is driven, it would appear to be by national and, you know, patriotic interests. It says they are procuring guns, getting more training, and are and most are glad to volunteer for now, according to sources close to Joseph. He is the nominal head of Guy Philippe's party, and hence one of Philippe's lieutenants, making Philippe BSAP's effective leader. Now, again, we're talking about the guy who was in U.S. jails, who is now kind of this de facto leader of the revolution in some people's eyes. Just again, just concerned about, you know, just keep that thought in mind about where this ends up. But the point is that so this huge militia group now seems to be de facto, like it says, he's the essentially the effective leader of what appears to be the largest force. His plan is to turn BSAP into a well-organized armed force that will subdue the criminal gangs plaguing Haiti. Which again, I wonder whether that is being driven by the, the whatever outside force you might expect to destabilize things in the interest of People wanting whoever they put in power to stop that, sort of like a form of sanctions, right? That's how that, that'll make that point again when we get to the Congo side of this. It's what they do. This side of it's just me going, that makes sense. I can't prove that. Reestablishing security in Haiti in 90 days, he says, this is his point, and if necessary, to chase Ariel Henry from power in general. On January 29th, the government banned BSAP members from carrying arms, wearing uniforms, or circulating in towns, which makes sense, while ordering them to register immediately at the nearest environmental ministry office. The decree stands absolutely no chance of being respected. But that's obvious to me of a U.S. puppet going, you can't have arms and you have to register because this is a power that threatens them. Philippe, the former police chief, is calling on the Haitian National Police rank and file to side with the people's movement and not combat the BSAP agents. Now, of course, you know what that will be called. 
that the government supporting the U.S. government, for example, supporting their puppet, are going to call the BSAP terrorist organizations. Mark my words, if this goes that far, that's what will be most likely be deemed. But it goes on to say, I don't say, and this is for a person speaking on the record, uh, Sherylson Sinan, or actually, I think that's a guy. I think that's this person here. Yeah, Sherylson Sinan. Is that I don't say that I'm a, I'm a Guy Philippe fanatic, but when your house catches fire and you have to put it out to save your home, your family inside, you will accept help from anybody who brings water. And afterwards, you'll examine his face. Interesting analogy. I think that's, a, right, the point being that, you know, when you've been, when your country is burning down because of outside influence, anybody that steps up to try to stop that, it's a means to an end. His point is that this guy seems to have momentum. They're willing to, they can actually push back the U.S. puppet. Well, we'll support him. And then after the fact, we'll go from there. You know, it's like, with somebody who is like, they'll step in and try to criticize how people like this will side with terrorists. His point is, and I'm not even saying that's what's happening, but the analogy being that, like, let's say Palestinians who are now supporting Hamas, they're going to go, see, they're all terrible terrorist supporters. Well, at this point in time, it's, it's the point he's making right there. Look, your house is burning down. They're offering you water. You're going to take it because nobody else is trying to help. After the fact, you may stand back and go, okay, well, now things are different. But they'll sure as hell use that to make you look like the bad guy. That's an important point. But he goes on to say, I ask all the people who believe in me and know that I'm not corrupt, don't support Guy Philippe, but support the people in this battle. Because Haiti has to get out of this mess. I support the movement to overturn the system. And that means not just overturning Ariel Henry and all his acolytes. Right? There's something much bigger happening here. I believe this. And, you know, look, there's people in this country that can very much understand what the, what that sentiment was. I worry, though, that if you're doing so through the two-party mindset, that you're going to get trapped. We can't actually have something change in that kind of a way in this country without all of Americans on the same side. And as, I don't mean that in the sense of, like, 100%. I just mean that it can't be, like, for instance, I understand the mindset of trying to change this system in a wholesale kind of way. And that we have the right as Americans to try to accomplish that. But I'm not operating through a two-party mindset. And there are people on both sides of the paradigm who might agree with me. But we won't achieve any real cohesion because they have a fundamentally different understanding of what that would look like and even where you would start because, I argue, the two-party paradigm keeps them lost. Either way, it's very simple. It's, they're being exploited. They're trying to, they have been since their inception. And they are trying to fight out from it Finally, with the opportunity, because it's been presented because everything seems to be changing right now. And don't forget the point they're trying to make it essentially, you know, you can't have arms, you have to register. We don't want you to be a militia group. Well, it's weird that the same thing is happening in our country right now. Preventing private paramilitary activity of 2024. Don't miss these overlaps, guys. We're watching a worldwide shift right now. Doesn't mean it's in the positive. It, hopefully, we can make it that. I do believe it is, but where it ends up is the real point. But again, the world, here's Congo in the same conversation, the Democratic Republic of Congo, right? So there's, there's two, I believe, um, the point they made in this article, don't, not to be confused with the Republic of Congo, which is it's weird, but it's confusing seeing as how they're so close. But DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo is what we're discussing today. Here's a video from Sim Sima. Just pointing out that at the at the national anthem at this at this game, this football game or soccer, depending on where you are in the world, there the, the team made made a big 
political statement to try to get people to pay attention to what they're dealing with. I think this was it right here. Or no, I think I just showed it on this. Yeah. Just so you can see it. So they essentially... So they all held this for, you know, 30 seconds. Which definitely got attention. People want to know what they're, t- what, you know, what's going on. What, what, what are they, what are they doing this for? You know? So let's talk about it. So I wrote this myself in 2016. The Congo uprising and the CIA stooge. So let's start there. 2016. 22 people were recently killed during a protest in what is absurdly still named the Democratic Republic of Congo. Not to be confused with the Republic of Congo. The name is absurd because the CIA has long since had its planted stooge in the nation's seat of power, as well as having its fingers intricately intertwined with the political process for decades. Now, what's funny is people who have never heard this stuff probably already just going, geez, you know, what country don't you think the U.S. controls? Now, you might you might have that reflexive mindset because that's how they train you to think. But you have to realize that this is it's actually it's far more reach far reaching than you may realize that it may be shocking to you to realize just how many entities are basically serve as vassal states to the U.S. empire, whether that's because they bow to the interest of the pressure of military force or or political influence, or they've literally regime changed them and put somebody in power that's more amenable to what they want. I mean, again, to overlap it to the larger point of Israel right now. That's what Israel and the United States government and largely the West have done over the years, funded the most radical elements of what they claim they're fighting. Why? Because the more moderate elements don't want to bow to their interests. So it's never been about stopping what they are. It's about trying to control what they're doing as a country or rather as a community or, rather, you know, whatever, any endeavor of levels. And if you can't get them to do what you want, well, you find the group that's more amenable to that. And I'll tell you what, people that are, will kill for money will do just about anything for money and influence and power. And so they go with that. If, if, if you, as an American, have yet to fully look back through your own history and what we can quite literally prove, even just using their own admissions after the fact, and you can't recognize by now that they have, by that matter of policy, funded and armed like the worst of the worst, while then standing up and pretending they're fighting the worst of the worst. I just don't know how you can rectify those two things. You're either ignoring their own stated history or you, I don't know, don't care to look at all and just don't want to acknowledge it because it's hard to understand or hard to, hard to, to, I don't know, accept. Because truly, it's public information. I make that point all the time about just like the two, the ones that we all seem to know, Osama bin Laden, Saddam Hussein. The big, big boogeyman bad guys that we talk about, well, both of them were U.S. assets, allies, openly, until they weren't. And you can't, you don't think that's interesting? <laughs> like, just, doesn't that tell you something? Anyway, the point here is that this is the reality. That it's very obvious and provable, even again, based on their own stated admissions going back, or people that would, you know, write a book as a CIA agent that talks about what they did at that time. All, it's been publicly acknowledged so many ways around. So yes, the CIA has long had its tentacles wrapped around this country. As as yet, this is old news. It was not until the recent president uh, chose, or I wrote, or was instructed, to disregard the country's constitution, which allows a given president no more than two consecutive terms. And 
instead opted to forego the next election and just remain on what has now become a dictator throne. Right. The point is that you just go, well, nah, we don't like that rule, so we'll ignore it. So you have two terms. The Constitution states you can only have two terms no matter what. And you don't change that. You just go, nah, I don't like that rule. We won't care about it because you're a dictator. And so this is probably not what the U.S. wanted because that very clearly shows and demonstrates that you think you're a dictator because you've got U.S. support. Or they said that because they didn't know what else to do, didn't have another option, couldn't find another person. Who knows? The point was they just tried to push in a third term with this public U.S. puppet. As of December 19th, again, this is 2016, Joseph Kabula became an ex-president or should have according to the country's constitution. However, he instead chose not to have elections, just unofficially naming himself president for an unconstitutional third term and likely more to follow. That's what happened. You, you okay with that, everybody? I'm, I'm the president again. Shut up. Because democracy. The U.S. didn't care. They didn't scream about it. They didn't go, oh my God, democracy. You're violating the sacred... Nope, they didn't say a word because they don't care about democracy. They laugh at you when you think they care about democracy. They just care about that. Keeping him in the position they want him in as long as you think they care about democracy. Now, according to local journalists, those killed in these protests because of this are likely due to government security forces opening fire on those protesters, which by the way, is exactly what their, their, their modus operandi. Now, uh, Kabula and his supporters have denied any plan to stay in power, even though that's literally what they are doing and said elections were simply delayed by logistical problems. Yet that stands in stark contrast to the majority of reports from the ground in a recent interview with, with RT, uh, Kambale Moose, uh, it was, a uh, Musavuli, a Congolese journalist and activist, explained why this had come about and how the U.S. is largely responsible. President Kabula, Kabula, who has caused this crisis in the Congo today, again in 2016, is a product of the United States. The United States actually placed him there, which again is very easy to prove. They supported him in 2001 when he ascended to power as a rebel. Then into, And again, even right there, the point was funding the entities that are more amenable to what you want them to do for, their, for whatever money, power, and you use them, you fund them, you drive them, and then you get them in position, and it's the same kind of thing. Then in 2006 and 2011, with the elections in the Congo, the United States was, the, was one of the first countries to recognize Kabula as the president, even though the elections were illegitimate. Again, a per, people screaming about this. And again, the same point that you get from them in any other country. They will be the ones screaming that Venezuela, for example, or Bolivia were illegitimate. And they're the only entity doing so, even though they've got hundreds of international observers, they've got or international organizations watching. Nope. They say it doesn't matter. Their puppet organization of American state steps up and says, fake. Democracy matters. And then they allow a military junta to take place, but they don't have a problem with that because democracy, right? It's just so transparent. They didn't speak up because they don't care about any kind of process. Now, it goes on to say Democratic Republic of Congo, Africa's biggest miner of copper and metals used in gadgets like cobalt. Today, especially, we now see why that's so important, has not known a peaceful transition of power since independence from Belgium in 1960. And this is why. The case could be made that the major influence of outside powers in the area, due largely to its vast resources, have made it very difficult for a real election to take place, or some semblance of structure and stability to be maintained. With a country in turmoil or led by a U.S.-backed puppet, 
those with the power to do so can easily take advantage. And this has been happening for centuries, but in, in a general sense, all over the world. This is also why they, the story has received almost no major coverage and still hasn't, by the way. And those who do cover the story give a vague overview of, you know, yet another African country in chaos, all bad Africa, right? Same thing they do in the Middle East and fail to include the factors at play that effectively created the chaos to begin with so they could exploit it. Or even that the president is failing to step down. They can't, like, the corporate media didn't even acknowledge that. The only aspect they want the American people to take note of, the same thing. Africa equals chaos. So we have to save them from themselves. All those involved want nothing more than to maintain the wildly profitable status quo where they can do basically anything that is desired with essentially zero consequences as very few are actually paying attention. As always, this is by design. He writes, as, as all of this is very predictable, he writes, the journalist. We have a president that was imposed on the Congolese people, mainly through U.S. foreign policy, to have a leader that will provide access to Congo's resources. Exactly. Now, the, the journalist goes on to say that there are more reasons that Americans should care about what's taking place in the Congo, as there are clear parallels taking place, in this is 2016, still today, though, between the two countries and their respective political upheaval. Remember, this is the time around Donald Trump, and you know it's a lot has shifted since then. He also asserts that not only should the American people care for moral and civic reasons, but due to the fact that what is taking place in the Congo is being funded by U.S. taxpayers. You are funding these regime changes, but most of you know that by now. This is not hard to imagine, knowing the extent to which the U.S. has been, you know, nation building, as they used to call it, both publicly and covertly for decades. You know what? They don't say that anymore because that's an old trope that we all know what that means. Even saying nation building is now, I mean, it, that should have always been perceived as a bad thing. That is a violation of their sovereignty. You're doing this without their acknowledgement or interest or desire. Now, it says dating back to 1960. With the help of the CIA, Congo's first prime minister, Patricia Mercy Lumba, was assassinated, right? So 1960, they finally, finally get independence from Belgium, and they're free. And then the CIA steps in and murders their president. That's how this has always gone. Then, for 32 years, there was dictator wars, as they called it, imposed on the Congo, orchestrated by the CIA, right? So you keep this back and forth. In the meantime, all you're doing is whatever you want. Knowing that Kabula himself was placed in power by the United States, it becomes clear that the U.S. government is deeply tied to this event and that the people are left holding the check. As the story continues to go uncovered by the mainstream media, ask yourself why that is. So in this one example, you can see that a country finally gets its own independence, but a government that has power and interest and designs to take whatever they want, whenever they want and call it freedom, immediately killed the person that they elected, forced in what they wanted and have ever since kept this place in absolute devastation. It's what they've done in every one of these locations. And it's about damn time that we acknowledge that. And it's not just the U.S., it's just the West at large. It's the European entities. It's not every single aspect of it, but it's not just the U.S. government. Now, this was, I wrote this in, two, oh, excuse me, this was uh, anti-war, 2019. The U.S., and again, this, I wrote this in 2016. So jump forward to 2019. And again, that, that what's important to understand is the timeline here. 
Okay, so we have a, the president, basically this guy, Kabula, Kabula, forced in a third term. Okay, they weren't, they, they, that, that's what happened. He literally existed in that third term from 2016 all the way until 2018, which went even further. So it's like, you know, he, he got his third term plus, and that was a U.S. puppet. Nobody cared about that. N- not a peep from the democracy, pro-democracy corporate media, nothing. So go all the way to 2019, January, the new president finally gets sweared in. Another U.S. puppet. But this is before, this is first, this is U.S. quietly deploying troops in the mirrors, in in mid-fears of unrest. Now it says, while the election in Congo was relatively quiet, the U.S. is expecting that there will be protests while the results are announced. Right, so another puppet's in place. People are outraged because they've never gotten away from this and so they're, it's the same story. Go back, they're deploying their own troops to stop the real popular uprising. U.S. expecting that there will be protests. The anticipation is enough that President Trump, part of the same problem, guys, has ordered to send troops to neighboring Gabon. But he didn't start any new wars. He just kept all of them going and started plenty of new things nobody likes to talk about. And is warning the Congolese not to protest. How dare you? You better not... Fight for your rights, Donald Trump said. Nancy Pelosi, of course, in line with Trump, because they're totally in agreement on this, is reporting that the U.S. sent about 80 troops and appropriate combat equipment to the neighboring country to fight. President Trump has said more troops will be deployed. Nancy Pelosi, Donald Trump, high-fiving over their suppression of their rights. The election is between the ruling party's candidate, Shadari, and the opposition candidate, Fayula which, by the way, neither of them ended up winning, who is backed by the Catholic Church. The Catholics appear to be anticipating a Fayula win and have even warned of an uprising if an untrue result is released. Now, Shattery is backed by the longstanding dictator, Kabula. So immediately, and of course, this guy's like a pro like Exxon oil or something like that. Like It's just so obvious. But he's also, he, he, he himself accused the Catholics of being irresponsible in their attitude toward the election. So here is what actually happened. And I find this to be very interesting. So general elections were held. Well, I should just simply put the narrative, what we go forward discussing. This is Wikipedia for he was on the podcast. General elections were held in the Democratic Republic of Congo on the 30th of December, 2018, to determine a successor to Kabula. Right, the illegal puppet who's been there more than another third term. Like, it's just so ridiculous. But it turns out, Felix, uh, I think it's Tashikiti, this guy here, won, but only with 38.6% of the vote. So plurality. Defeating another opposition candidate, Fayula, and Shattery, backed by the ruling party. So you could argue right there that's a, that just worked out that way. But my point is, I'd be willing to bet the U.S. government backed more than one candidate and drove this as best they could in whatever direction they could, or it's all completely fake in the first place. But it goes on to say, Fayula alleged that the vote was rigged against him in a deal made with Tashikita, Tash- Tash- that's hard to say, Tashikita, and outgoing president, Kabula. So that's very interesting. So now you've got the, basically the person who didn't seem to, the only one that did not seem to be, if I've got that, make sure I'm, saying that correctly. Yeah. So the Fayula 
for all we know, they're all completely controlled. But Fayuda seemed to be the one that was not the one being supported by the U.S. government. The other two seemed to have obvious ties, but he, Fayula, after losing, was the one that spoke up and said the vote was rigged against him with a deal made between Felix, the new, the actual president today, and the other puppet that we can prove was connected to uh, uh, Kabula, saying that they challenged the results in the constitutional court. Now, the country's Roman Catholic Church apparently also spoke up and cast doubt on the result. So you never know. That could be them saying that because they lost, just like we keep seeing in our country. But I think what's important to recognize is that this, well, let me finish this last part. According to the Constitution, the second and final term of President Kabula expired on December 20th, 2016. General elections were originally scheduled for November 27th, 2016, but were delayed, as I told you, with a promise to hold them by the end of 2017, which didn't happen. The promise was subsequently broken after both international and internal pressure, the elections were finally scheduled for the 2018. They were, however, postponed for a week on December 30th, uh, 2018, due to a fire in the Electoral Commission's warehouse and just and apparently destroyed 8,000 voting machines. So there, there's something off, obviously, about this. And I think that my gut tells me that yet another example, just like the other candidates and even the Catholic Church spoke up and said, they found a way to put this person in power. Now, as Herman J. Cohen writes, make sure I didn't, oh yeah, that was it. He writes, during, and this is 2019, during Washington meetings with visiting Democratic Republic of Congo, President Felix Tshisekedi. God, why is that so hard to say? Let me do this. I'll still probably forget it. Ah, I was saying it totally wrong. Chisaketti. Chisaketti. That's crazy. Very strange. So Chisaketti, President Chisaketti, during their meeting, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo pledged full support to his new government, thereby bringing disputes over his legitimacy to a close. Oh, is that what happened? (laughs) That's quite the opposite, in my opinion. Chisaketti being backed by Mike Pompeo is one more knock, in my opinion, in regard to how obviously that would suggest that they are happy with that outcome. Now, I covered this in 2019. This was the show, Israel Bombs Gaza, just to show you that that has been ongoing for a very long time. U.S. troops leaving Syria, going to Iraq instead of home, and then U.S. deploys to Congo. So the U.S. government, again, deploying troops to the Congo for its own benefit. Here is an election result from 2024. So bringing this forward to now. Okay, so we can clearly see that there was some shifty stuff going on. Even the most popular candidate, ultimately, basically another entity that that was supporting of their interest, which has gone on, continued supporting U.S. interests ever since, and Mike Pompeo openly supported, seems to have won in an illegitimate way based on the statements from the ground, journals on the ground, all the way forward to today, 2024. Election results in the Democratic Republic of Congo. This is Matt Miller, of all people. United States congrats, congratulates Shikaside, the same person, on his re-election to a second term. Okay, wait a minute, though. So we're talking about 2019. Second term? So you have, you have a... So we're talking about this in 2024. So this was a six-year term? Or a five-year term? 
I mean, <laughs> I mean, are we doing the same thing again where we just ignore the fact that they're clearly not following the norm? I mean, the bottom line is here is the U.S. government again going, yay, this guy is, is in the election. that It just took this long to get done. Like in any other country where they postpone elections, I mean, that's, that in and of itself is proof they're illegitimate from the U.S.'s perspective. But they support him. Now they say, regrettably, noted by domestic and international observation missions, insecurity, logistical issues, and you know, basically there's issues with the there people are being accused of fraud and corruption, and you know, and the, but we have to look into it. But so basically, coming out and saying we support this ruling, but we call for people to investigate. Now, what do they do elsewhere? What happened in Bolivia when there were simply allegations that ter- later turned out to be nothing but allegations? They called for his to be his removal. They called for him to be removed, put in jail. But of course, over here, they go, yay, we like this guy. So we're going to sit with this until you prove something else. And we'll probably dispute whatever you bring to us. It just shows you that it's a double standard. They want this person in power. Now, today, this is what we're getting from the New York Times, so December last month, last year, so end of last year. The overlooked crisis in Congo. We live in war. Like, think about how gross it is for them to cover it like this and act like it's some, we never even know, we don't even know this is happening. Your government has been maintaining their destabilization and funding the worst of the worst the entire time. Now, here's what's interesting. In February 7th, both sides of this, talking about the, the gangs and the groups that are being used, thousands flee in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo as this group called the M23 Rebels advance near Goma. So I found this very interesting. Thousands of people fleeing in these clashes between the Congolese army and the M23 group. So at face value, with the current president there that seems to be supported by the U.S. government, you might argue the M23 group is fighting against the U.S.-backed puppet, which maybe that's the case. But I feel like there's something bigger going on here about whether maybe this guy is not necessarily, you know, as as I mentioned before, maybe he's no longer what they want. Maybe he's no longer producing what they ultimately want to achieve in the sense of let's look into whether this M23 group might be achieving something different. Now here is the Human Rights Watch from two days ago. Atrocities by Rwanda-backed M23 rebels. Now it says the Rwanda-backed M23 armed group has committed summary executions, forced recruitment of civilians in the DRC. Human Rights Watch reports, the Congolese army is responding to the M23's offensive by equally collaborating with militias with abusive records. So what's interesting to me is no matter which way you look at this, apparently the U.S. government's completely okay working with the very people they pretend that they're always trying to fight. No surprise there. That's what they do. But it says the warring parties have increasingly appealed to ethnic loyalties, putting civilians in remote areas of the of, of North Kivu province at a heightened risk. Now it says, quote, Rwanda-backed M23 rebels in North Kivu are leaving behind a growing trail of war crimes against civilians. Rwanda should end its military support for the M23, while Congolese government troops should prioritize protecting civilians and cease using abusive militias and proxy forces. So another way to look at it, too, is it's very, like, it's, it's possible this is just an actual dispute between Rwanda and Congo. And since the U.S. government has a puppet in Congo and openly supports Rwanda, maybe they just don't care. Just showing you yet again that they have no concern for the things they pretend they're fighting for if it contrasts with their interests. You know, human life and human rights and all that. But I think it's more than that. By just simply showing you, which we'll get into, is that there's an obvious overlap with Rwanda and the United States. Now, recent investigations by the United Nations Group of Experts on Congo, as well as Human Rights Watch, provide significant photographic and other evidence that Rwanda is not only giving logistical support to M23, but that Rwandan troops 
are actually reinforcing or fighting alongside the armed group inside the Congo, the group that's committing human rights atrocities. The Rwandan government has denied supporting the M23 rebels. The point, though, cope it's clear, is Human Rights Watch found otherwise. Their report and their investigation found that these are, in fact, atrocities being publicly backed by, or rather just, you know, with their actions publicly, backed by Rwanda. So Dr. Shola Moshangbamamu <laughs> writes, Holocaust of, Con this was on the 20 2023 November, Holocaust of Congolese people, exploiting them for cobalt and copper, which in its own story is important. That that's happening everywhere. We keep showing you the lithium mines, the cobalt and con They're being exploited by the governments acting like they're fighting for some rules-based international order. Thousands of children enslaved to work in the mines, millions killed and displaced, human rights abuses to put profit before people to satisfy the West's tech greed. The UK is complicit in backing Rwanda. Just to show you the overlap to what these, and I, that it's provable. The UK, the United States are very clearly backing Rwanda in, in a general sense. And they're mining, using people like this in all the places they are. But does that uh, extend to their support over the groups that are killing people in Congo? <clears throat> now, this is uh, Congo's bleeding. First of all, this is a U.S. embassy post that says, the U.S. expressed their unwavering support and their deep condolences to the people of Congo who are suffering from the violence of the M23. Saying that, of course, the Director National of U.S. Aid went to the area to supervise the delivery of tarpaulins in order to prevent sh to provide shelter to these people that are displaced. Now, I don't, I mean, they, the U.S. aid, in my opinion, the individuals within it very well may think they're doing good, and maybe they are, but the actual entity is not what it appears to be. It is a regime change engine, and it's been openly admitted by people within the group. But he writes, the U.S. government is very cynical. On November 29th, over 100 people were brutally murdered in Kashish by, by M23 backed by Rwanda. U.S. The U.S. embassy, the response? Let's give the refugees tents and ignore Section 105 of Public Law 109-456 to hold Rwanda accountable. Right, so people publicly calling them out for not caring that Rwanda is openly committing atrocities. Now, he also writes, it appears that, and this is in 2024, February, so two days or three days ago. And again, the ambassador writes, Given the recent surge in misinformation regarding the U.S. relations with Congo, isn't that interesting? I want to reiterate that the United States supports a strong, stable, and peaceful Democratic Republic of Congo, and it's and it's it is confident that peace can only be achieved if sovereignty and territorial integrity are respected. You mean like you respect Iraq sovereignty or or Afghanistan sovereignty? or Venezuela's sovereignty, or Bolivia's sovereignty, or Gaza, or Palestine's sovereignty, or on and on and on. You don't respect sovereignty at all, so why would we take that at face value? It goes on to say, we condemn the Rwanda-backed M23. So here is the U.S. Embassy admitting that Rwanda is, in fact, working with the M23, which has been under U.S. sanctions since 2013. And we stand with the Congolese people by providing $1 billion per year in program, support, education, in saving in life-saving human humanitarian aid, they say. Well, where does it actually go? Now, I, I'm not going into now, but my point would be just like the rest of these conversations. I'm willing to bet you that only a fraction truly gets to people who need it. So that being said, knowing that it is publicly admitted, it appears that the burning of the U.S. flag in Congo has made the U.S. ambassador worried. 
the Congolese are finally understanding the U.S. destabilizing role in Congo via Rwanda and Uganda. So he's basically calling them out saying they're utilizing Rwanda and Uganda to maintain destabilization in Congo for their own benefit so they can reap the benefits from the resources and so on. So this is one of the other points about maintaining a sense of constant conflict so no one's paying attention. You know how valuable it is right now for them to continue to take the co- the cobalt from these mines? So here's a, here's a, he, he, he points to this documentary. I recommend you watch it. It's only 26 minutes long. It's actually pretty powerful. It's 12 years old. Well, here's a clip that I think is important. Congo is like a nightmare in heaven. It's a heaven because, you know, Congo is the heart of Africa. So much natural resources, the people, uh, the animals, uh, the flowers, uh, everything, you know, Congo is heaven, but the thing is that people are living like in hell. People are dying. At first, we used to hear one million people die, two, three, four, five. And the situation is getting worse, worse and worse, you know, because the money is, the money is there, the resources are out there in Congo, and everybody wants a piece of Congo. Everybody wants a piece of Congo. people living hand-to-mouth in one of the most mineral-rich countries in the world. The Congo produces more than a billion dollars of gold alone each year. And the cobalt and the tin and the copper and the tungsten, all of that we're benefiting from, but yet we're silent. When people invade your country, they rape your women, they rape the kids. Hold on, I think I actually put in the full version here yeah i did hold on i mean really it's worth watching the whole thing to be quite honest it's very powerful but i I did a clip that i wanted to show you so because i don't want to play the 26 minute show here hold on one second let's see there it is hold on what That's very frustrating. Here, I'm going to keep playing it, I guess, while I wait for that. Let me see if I can find the spot. That's very frustrating. I guess I made a mistake here. I lost this somewhere. Shoot. Six. Let's see. Here, let me do this. Yeah, I've got it for the most part. It's right here. Why would they be victimized by this? These Hutu were not combatants. They were not people under arms. They were elderly. They were women. They were children. They were sick people who were killed in a systematic and highly motivated way. And the UN knew about it almost in real time. The UN knew, the US government knew, I believe other governments knew as well. They did not make an effort 
to openly investigate those were not good enough. They allowed investigations to be blocked and they didn't push it. Now we're talking about the genocide in Rwanda, right? That we can, another conversation should be had about how obviously the U.S. government has, you know, as they're pointing out, chose not to do anything as well as the United Nations for many different reasons that have nothing to do with helping people. Now, the question can be asked, why was that the case? And of course, part of the difficulty here was that many policymakers felt guilty. They hadn't done enough to stop the Rwandan genocide. And that genocide guilt allowed them to cover this up. That guilt, man. Now, I don't think that's actually the reality. Personally, I don't think these, I think the sociopaths don't tend to care Regardless, there's a reason they they chose to fixate on the fact because they're human beings and they, these people have compassion, so they see the same in others, which you know, which is what most people do, that they cared. You know, yeah, we didn't do enough for this genocide, so it caused them to to want to help, or rather specifically ignore what else Rwanda went on to do later. It's essentially the point. But personally, I don't think it's about feeling guilty. I think it's about other interests that were involved. Either way. The point is, for whatever reason, afterward, they now, in bringing this to the point today, are allowing Rwanda to essentially carry out these acts without really any consequences. Manifested in the Clinton era in a extremely, extremely pro-Rwanda policy, which essentially allowed the new government in Rwanda to do whatever they wanted, both within their country and within Congo, right. with impunity. With the leaders of the United States and the United States. So you can see right there, you could make the point. I'm not sure if I think this is the case or not, that, you know, maybe this is Rwanda just simply taking advantage of that, of that unfettered, you know, they could do what they want and trying to take what they can from Congo. And now that's the U.S. government just choosing not to care about that. Like maybe making your passive tweet about how you care, but, you know, we've said this and that about it. But if it was Russia doing it, you know the difference, how they would respond, right? United Nations looking the other way. Kagame proceeded with a full-scale invasion of Congo with his Ugandan ally, Yoweri Museveni. Now, this is not, this is an older coverage, right? This is not today, but the same point can be made. So the question is, uh, what role did the U.S. play in this? The first, the, this and it was a pretty direct supporting role. Right. I happened to go to Rwanda just before this invasion took place. And, you know, major shipments of weapons were coming in at night to support the Rwandan army. We had placed uh, people in the country who were training Rwandan army troops. Uh, and in, in short, we were supporting the invasion. The right. United States, what they decided... It really shouldn't be that shocking to people. I mean, this stuff is, is all but acknowledged in historical context. Why would it be any different now? ...doing the final analysis was to support an invasion of the Congo. In this case, you had Rwanda and Uganda invading their neighbor, plundering it of its natural resource wealth, and suffering no sanctions at the United Nations Security Council. Exactly. And you have to ask why, and it's because uh, they had the very strong support and backing of the United States, United Kingdom, and other governments. Right. Literally the same thing's happening today. Now, the different dynamic is whether or not there's somebody currently in power that they want or that's not the case, or they're just tired of what you know. I mean, who, you could play out a lot of different possibilities. But what we can prove is that they have a vested interest in maintaining chaos in these countries for their own benefit. 
and very clearly have blind spot for allowing Rwanda to do whatever it wants ever, you know, going back to whatever reasoning they didn't do anything about the Rwanda genocide or in fact drove it for their own purposes, right? There's a lot of different conversation there. But just so we understand this before we get into the uh, the next conversation, <clears throat> excuse me, which we're already two hours, so I'm not sure how much we'll get into, but this is not new. Overthrowing other people's governments, the master list of U.S. regime changes. Yeah, this, this, there's a lot of coverage about how obvious this really is. But you can go through this, you know, this, and this is not even a full one, right? This, this is a condensed list. But just looking at this, instances the United States overthrowing, attempting to overthrow a foreign government since the Second World War. I mean, it, and these are, it's unparalleled. There is no other country that does this. There's, you know, they point at the other countries and they say they're secretly trying to do it where you can't see. Well, maybe. But even then, that's far less damaging than what you're publicly doing and just calling it freedom. Now, I would also point out, though, I would argue that any government, China, Russia, any of them, were allowed to get to the point that U.S. is now with the kind of power and clout they perceive at the very least to have, they would be doing the same thing. That's what I believe. Power, absolute, you know, what's the old saying? that Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is 2018. U.S. military is all over Africa, despite not being at war in Africa. It's just, it just continues to show you that this is about much, it's control and influence and, and taking for their own benefit. 2018, former CIA chief admits that U.S. meddling in foreign elections, quote, is for their own good. I mean, it's just couldn't be more obvious. These are all U.S. article or uh, T-Lab articles. Now, Two last points in regard to other current foreign policy discussions. This is from Robert from yesterday. You may, not, you may have seen this. U.S. drone strike in Baghdad assassinates top Iraqi official. Now, they killed another official with him, by the way. The point is that this is U.S. government assassination of an Iraqi official under the argument they're responding to Iran, and they call this a deterrent. Like, this is the, a belligerent failing power. You are watching them act irrationally with absolute aggression because that's all they can do right now. I mean, we have to realize that, guys. This is not about America or you Americans. This is a rogue entity that is acting in your name with your money, murdering people all around the world. We can do something about that if we're actually have the courage enough to look beyond the talking heads of the two-party paradigm and stop falling into the same old traps over and over. But my God, this, I mean, it's it's like, whether it's, I mean, Soleimani is a great point, but of course, in the paradigm, people have decided one narrative or another, you know, there's terrorist or whatever else, which is not true. But in this case, guys, there's just no way around this. They're going to try to make this about Iran. But you have to realize Iran is allowed to be in Iraq. Iran is an ally of Iraq, despite U.S. occupation, which is illegal. And not only that, what they're actually continuing to bomb is the para, rather specifically, I guess Robert was saying the paramil, para, uh, or popular mobilization forces is the more accurate current term. The PMU or units, I guess is an older term. Either way, most people kind of know what is the PMU, but the popular mobilization forces are part of the Iraqi military. And are not Iran, as much as they pretend that's the case. And they keep this ongoing back and forth. And they're just straight up murdering people in a country that they're literally occupying. Which makes it just as illegal as what Israel's doing to Gaza. I just can't get past this, guys. These, this, is, this is blatant illegality. This is rampant lawlessness. And they literally call this defending yourself. 
It's disgusting. Now, Iran spoke up condemning U.S. attacks on Iraq and Syria. Quote, persistent violations of international law, which, by the way, they are. It doesn't matter what your opinion is or whether you believe you're bombing Iran. It's still a violation of law. You're not at war with, I mean, and again, you're occupying this country. There's legalities around that through international law that don't change because you just don't like someone who's there. Complicity in Israel's genocide and overall destabilizing role in the Middle East. They say, quote, and it's seven minutes. I won't play the whole thing. You can listen to it. It is evident to anyone that the root causes of this current situation in the region are occupation, aggression, and the continued genocide and horrific atrocities committed by the Israeli regime and fully supported by the U.S. against innocent Palestinians. Now, again, the idea of occupation, this is very uncomfortable for them. They've had control over this conversation so long because of Israel's belligerence. Everybody now is very aware of this conversation and going, oh, you mean that they're illegally occupying Syria? They're illegally occupying Iraq? That changes how this league, how they're supposed to res- Yeah, same thing with Gaza, same point. And no matter how much they flail about and scream and call you racist, it's just not working anymore. Good. Go on, it goes on to say the U.S. must end its obstruction of the U.N. Security Council and allow the adoption of the draft resolution proposed by Algeria focusing on the ceasefire in Gaza. Oh, yeah, and I'm glad I did this so I wouldn't forget. In this, in Robert's article, what's crazy to me, at the same time, so they bomb an Iraqi a top official, right? And at the same time, as he writes, yet within the U.S., go- when the U.S. government launched this massive campaign of airstrikes on Iraq and Syria, guess what also happened? ISIS suddenly emerged and started bombing the same time against the same people. You don't say. How shocking, or not at all, when you realize that that's what always happens. As I said here, back on January 7th, ISIS claims responsibility for an attack against Iran, which doesn't really make much sense when you think about the current narratives. And I said, how many times exactly do we need to see ISIS, whatever you think it actually is, attack the enemies of Israel at the peak of hostile rhetoric before we truly understand what we're seeing? Same point here. If we're watching the U.S. government suddenly bomb Iraq and Syria, and then at the same time, ISIS steps up and bombs the PMF in Iraq, we need to go, oh, okay, they're the same thing. I mean, it's pretty damn simple. People are just afraid to point out the obvious because, though conspiracy theory, one of the most successful things they've ever done is scaring people away from a term that doesn't even make sense when you break it down. But the reality is, as this person points out, and this is on C-SPAN, Israeli Secret Intelligence Service. That's ISIS for you right there. It's a combination of these two groups. Very, 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 very clear. Now, on top of all of that, Arnaud Bertrand writes, so the U.S. government, on top of everything that's happening too, but the destabilization of the Middle East, I mean, in, they're talking about, like, it's just, it's, it's, it's almost as if you could sit down and go, what would cause the most problems right now? What would cause the most chaos and the most what's the most provocative thing we can do and call it deterrence, right? The U.S. decides to place U.S. Army Special Forces now of all times on a long-term basis, right? literally a a few hundred feet away from the Chinese mainland. Think about that. The Matsu Islands. And then gaslight the whole world by, quote, cautioning China against changing the status quo on Taiwan, which is vital to maintaining peace, they say. I mean, it, it, it's like, again, the best point to make is what person said here. 
Oh, this was uh, Taiwan Defense says, U.S. Army Special Forces will be stationed with the Republic of China's Army's 101st Am- Amphibious Reconnaissance Battalion on a long-term basis on these islands. And they go, in that case, I'm sure U.S. won't mind if a small Chinese army base two kilometers off the coast of New York. Why is that different? It's not. The point is to show you, one, the seeming patience, almost never-ending of these entities that allow this, or really just the awareness that if they act, it'll be not in their interest because they'll turn that into their aggression as opposed to, you know, that's how funny this is. So the U.S. can do stuff like this, and if they respond, it's their aggression. The reverse happens, we're defending ourselves, right? Like, it doesn't matter what context or how these things line up. If they if they fight, we're defending. If we attack, we're defending. If we, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, you're always on the defense. Even when they have every reason to actually defend themselves, their aggression. This is the, the perfect analogy. I'm not touching you. It's the same thing I say about your, you know, stop hitting yourself. It's the same thing. They're, they're literally creating the provocation by, by putting their troops on the border, essentially, and then acting like anything they do anywhere else. And then we say they're the ones creating destabilization. They're the ones doing what? Show me an example of that. Unreal. Now, let's get into, I don't know how much we'll get into today, ultimately. That's why I didn't put too much in the title today, but we'll go rapidly through the points I think are important. Or not. Well, you know, we're at two and a half. We'll see, we'll, we'll see where we go. So first of all, another great article from Robert. Hamas has already defeated Israel, but neither the U.S. nor Israel can admit it. Now, you, could, you don't have to take that as like, parade. The point is simply a static, obvious reality. Right. If you understand what they're pretending is happening versus what's being proven based on breakdowns and videos and released information, which, of course, can be altered and can be selectively put out. But the point is, you're getting near zero coming from the Israeli side. But, you know, screaming about how many Hamas members we've killed. And and you could basically prove that at best they're guessing. And on top of that, even from the Israeli media side, all the different tanks that have been exploded. Ultimately. Even if their numbers are correct, the point is that what they've done is essentially carried out a massive defeat, both in a public relations sense, but also on the ground. Especially when you think about this in the larger Middle East dynamic. That's a great article you should read. Robert's really been knocking it out of the park. And we included a bunch of important points in all of this to, to overlap this with the different conversations, occupation, and so on. It's a great article. But I found this to be really interesting. So the point here is that they're failing right now. And they're all flailing about, right? They're trying to maintain their alliances, but at the same time, like from the U.S. perspective, they're like, okay, we can't just keep blindly doing this because we're losing everything. We have to make, like, and that's my opinion, obviously, but I think that's what's happening, both from a media sense. They see the writing on the wall. They see that every single one of the people that support them, like in a public sense, the average people are screaming how wrong they are. So they have to slowly pull this in while maintaining their, their, influences their select their their access journalism but it's coming down on them now netanyahu not a trustworthy leader says hillary clinton u.s brothers detained by israeli forces in gaza that's interesting i didn't even see that i just used this for the, the headlines i want to get into this times of israel article u.s brothers detained by israeli forces that's actually really interesting because i was i was gonna get into a story today I'm not, I'm going to wait for probably till the next show about a woman from or it's a, basically the family of a New Orleans grandmother. 
says that she was kidnapped by the IDF in Palestine. So she, she lives in Palestine, but she has got family in New Orleans who's saying that she was randomly kidnapped. Which, by the way, not surprising, seeing as how they're just kidnapping anybody all the time who is just Palestinian. But we'll come back to that. Hillary Clinton, Netanyahu's got to go. Now, what does this show you? No, it does not mean... This, this is actually a perfect analogy about the media point. Does this mean suddenly we trust Hillary Clinton? <laughs> Obviously not. It means that she is aware that everything... They've lost control. So she's an opportunist. She's going to step up and try to take the stand. Oh, well, I'm on the side of the truth because we see that Netanyahu... Well, it's not about Netanyahu. It's about the Zionist government and far, far, far more than just Netanyahu. So this is about them doing two things, in my opinion. From a personal perspective, Clinton trying to frame herself as being on the right side of the conversation, which is going to benefit her if she can work that out. I don't know why anybody would believe her at this point. But secondarily, for the larger agenda, if you can convince people that it's just Netanyahu... Well, you can get him out of the way and keep moving. Hopefully regain your footing. That probably won't happen, but that's what I think this is really about. But isn't it crazy to see somebody like Clinton, of all people, step up and go, I mean, it's really interesting to see Netanyahu in a position like this where he's standing up acting like everybody in the world supports him. If you don't, you're a racist who hates Jews. And Clinton stands up and goes, you're terrible. Get out of the way. So does that mean that she hates Jews? Does that mean that she's a racist? I guarantee they won't make that argument. But what's funny is you can go anywhere else and people who are just going, maybe Netanyahu should tone it down. They're like, you racist, you hate you. Not to her. When when she went as far as to say, you've got to get out of the way, you're not trustworthy. I just find that but this is a sign of what's going on. It's the writing on the wall. They have lost control of the narrative. They've lost what they're doing. They are just maximizing the suffering and the pain and the death for any number of reasons, petty reasons, just to punish the people who won or in hopes that maybe you can drive this in another direction. Either way, that's what they're doing. And your government is passively, if not actively, allowing that to continue. Death, suffering, murder, genocide, while screaming, we're fighting for freedom and human life. But here's, there's plenty of these examples. So Clinton, of all people, is just kind of mind-blowing to see, right? This is Arson Ostrovsky. You know, there's a lot of these entities that have kind of become common features of the Zionist propaganda. I mean, right, proud Zionist. America, first of all, we'll start with Blinken, because this is where the stems from. Blinken says, Israelis were dehumanized in the most horrific way on October 7th. Well, I don't see how. Terrible things happened. People died, right? They invaded, by the way, which was legally protected under national law, because it is. The act of armed resistance as an occupied entity per the Fourth Geneva Convention is legal. But crimes after that are not. But if you can't distinguish those two things, you're being dishonest. But nonetheless, even if you argue everything they said is true, where's the dehumanizing? The only way that comes into play, well, I take back the everything is true. That only comes to play if you pretend all of their atrocity propaganda was true. But it wasn't. Seemingly, everybody on us can admit that, including almost all of Israeli media at this point. But so to start out saying they were dehumanized, it's just about weighting the scales. Because your next sentence is, but that cannot be a license to dehumanize others. But you can't even have the courage to say Palestinians, right? But that's not okay. That went way too far. This is my point. 
So Blinken, of all people, who is blindly supporting Israel, going so far as to gaslight the genocide's not real. You guys are lying about that. But he steps up and simply says, you know, even starts by saying they were the ones that got hurt, dehumanized, but, but, but you, you can't do it to other people, though. And that to them is way too far. A wild supporter of Israel barely, barely steps a toe over the line and America is always and shall be our greatest friend, but sick and tired of this kind of lecturing and virtue signaling even come. That's how, that's what happens. Even at this point, this person responds, oh, they're so pro-Palestinian. The Biden administration? I mean, this is a group who has allowed genocide, who has gaslit the entire time, has dragged their feet for four plus months to allow it. And the moment they go, Maybe you shouldn't dehumanize other people. Oh, you love Palestine. It's like, that's the level of the mainstream conversation. Lockstep, lockstep, lockstep. And then, you know, I don't know, but they're people too. Oh, you hate Jews. Like, what the hell? It's so unnerving to see. And some people truly believe that. So my point again goes back to Clinton, of all people, saying you're not trustworthy, not a peep. But, uh, Blinken simply tries to equivocate, equivocate in some way and they attack him. But there's more than that. Here's what he says. And this is this is the pro-Palestinian administration that she was claiming. He goes, in my seventh trip to Israel since October 7th, his seventh trip. Think about that. There's all sorts of genocide, Congo, all these things happen in the world. Seventh trip in the last four months. I met with officials in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv to discuss the latest on my on the ground. My travels and recent meetings this week with regular leader meeting with all the leaders. Far too many lives have been lost, he says. Hostages are still being kept from their families. Yeah, because they refuse to take them back. Civilians continue to suffer as a result of the conflict. We must continue working towards a solution. He just can't even say the word Palestinian. And even that, again, is my point. That's too much. They'll attack him for suggesting, even broadly, that they might be not doing enough to stop killing people. He finally says at the end, the U.S. is committed to forging lasting peace and security in the region and is an Israel that is integrated into the region and an independent Palestinian state. By the way, which every single level of their government has said will never, ever, ever happen. And yet they act like this is in the process. So it shows you that they know that. They know it won't happen. They want you to think that that's what might happen. So you just kind of meekly go along with whatever they say with just around the corner. They've been saying that for 75 years. Well, more so 40-something years. The point is, he knows that's not going to happen. I don't even think he wants that. He knows that by maintaining the illusion of the state that they can pretend that Israel might actually not be just murdering people to murder people. And again, as always, to include the point that even Haaretz made it public that they, while pretending wanted a two-state solution, were actively funding the group who actually invaded October 7th, Hamas. Anyone who wants to thwart an establishment of a Palestinian state has to support bolstering Hamas and transferring money to Hamas. This is part of our strategy. Haaretz, the leading Israeli platform, put that out two days after October 7th. Because that makes sense, right? It does when you realize that they are not honest. The Israeli government was actively keeping the group that they pretended they were fighting strong so they could pretend that was why, because of Palestinians, of course, that they didn't allow a two-state solution. We're trying to give it to them, but they keep picking Hamas. All the Eli Davids and Enmazigs and all of them out there, that's what they keep saying. You elected them, and you did. It's why we, you, we give you all the money, and you give it to terrorists. No, you ridiculous person. Your own government was doing that. 
But here's all here's also what he said. Remember the pro-Palestinian Blinken. So we're told from the rabid Zionists. The families in Gaza whose survival depends on deliveries of aid from Israel are just like our families. They are mothers and fathers and sons and daughters who want to earn a decent living, send their kids to school and have a normal life. We must not lose sight of that. You'd imagine something like that would be like, well, yeah, that's like saying the sky is blue. These are human beings that have lives and families. But you can't say that. You can't pretend that they're, you can't humanize them. Well, Israel's actively trying to dehumanize them. That makes you a bad guy, right? The point is he got attacked for that. Countless peep Zionists going, how dare you support Hamas and whatever else? My point was, well, you're four, you're four months and an entire genocide that you're legally complicit in too late. This is just insulting at this point, especially as you continue to unconditionally arm Israel while saying that. She, there's the link showing you Israel used the most destructive bombs in areas designated as safe. Imagine standing up and acting like you care about their families and their futures and their, their dreams while then giving 2,000-pound dumb bombs to Israel, knowing where they're going because your people are on the ground. Axios wrote an entire article about the three-star general that was helping designate bombing locations. You guys are lost. We see you. Michael Oren writes, here's my point. When Secretary of State Blinken accuses Israel inaccurately, unfairly, and libelously, you might as well have said blood libel, of dehumanizing Palestinians, is that what he said? He dehumanizes us and contributes to the delegitimization of Israel and the demonization of Jews worldwide. Wow. Okay, so he start, he says... Israelis were dehumanized in the most horrific way. Then just simply says, but that can't be a license to dehumanize others. He did not even explicitly say you did it here and there. He just said, but you can't do that. Which, by the way, we, we would all go, yeah, obviously. That's a, that's a static reality, but not from Israel's perspective. How dare you state the law that we, that we pretend we're following? How dare you? You hate Jews. I told you. That's literal. I, I can't believe how ridiculous this has gotten. That's about as ridiculous as Mayorkas pretending that because he's got a family of a Holocaust survivor that you're not allowed to call out how bad he is at his job. It's absolutely mind-blowing to me. My, Blinken has been one of the mo obvious champions of Israel, blindly gaslighting pro-genocide, and he simply acknowledges that you can't dehumanize people, and they call, they basically insinuate that he attacked them, he libeled Israel, he dehumanized them, delegitimized them, and demonized Jews around the world. How exactly does that even dehumanize? I mean, it's just, it's, the, it's the, what you do. If you're a gaslighter for genocide, those are your talking points. He goes, thank you, Blinken, for resupplying us with ammunition and standing up for our right to self-defense. See? But without legitimacy, we will be hard-pressed to use the ammo or excuse that right, or exercise that right. <laughs> what? Dehumanizing us endangers our security and possibly our existence. So <laughs> I just... <laughs> I, it's a cartoon. Am I crazy? Like, this is absolutely... This, we should be making fun of this. The guy who's literally arming you to murder them, blindly supporting you because he does not toe the line exactly is suddenly demonizing Jews around the world. I mean, that that's comical, guys. That's ridiculous. Same point here to a degree. Rashida Tlaib. I don't I mean, just so it's obviously always clear, especially to new people, I don't support literally anybody in Congress. I don't support government anywhere, ever. I mean, I shouldn't say ever. I mean, there's points where I end up supporting 
you know, like I'd, I'd like, for instance, if I, 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 I would like to believe in somebody. Right. And I have in the past, we're like, well, you know, Tulsi Gabbard came around. I'm like, well, I hope, I hope she looks good. But then immediately, nope, there it is. Not real. RFK. I hope, I hope. Oh, oh there's, there you go. Support Israel. Support blindly supports genocide. Anyway, my point is I don't support any of them. She says, if you don't support Netanyahu, if you are disgusted by the countless lifeless children being pulled out of the rubble, all of which is easily proven, if you actually believe in upholding human rights and international law, she says, vote no on a blank check to Netanyahu's genocide, which was a bill in regard to giving them $14 billion, I think, in funding, while being legitimately accused of genocide through the world court. I mean, it's just staggering. Here's what they say. Same guy, Arson Otrovsky. I am disgusted by your unhinged Jew hatred and support for Hamas. Huh? Uh, where is that in there? You don't support, okay, don't support Netanyahu. Okay, so you're not, you're apparently not allowed to not support an Israeli leader, okay, or ruler, rather. Disgusted by dead children. Okay, so I guess being disgusted by dead children makes you hating Jews. If you actually believe in rights, okay, so I guess if you believe in human rights, you hate Jews. Vote no on the blank check. Okay, explain to me where any of that makes sense, or is this guy just like, is he having a stroke or something? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously being facetious. That's just what keeps happening. If you resist what they're doing, you wink, wink, secretly hate Jewish people, and you're a racist, and, you know, whatever else we can log on to that. Just all the talking points. That's what's happening. And it is painful to watch. Here is a brief moment of honesty, I think, where he probably didn't, his usual, think this will end up going anywhere. It, this is Michael Collins, Georgia representative, who when asked point blank, or rather just she states, as a Palestinian, I'm, I'm offended by, as a Palestinian, I'm offended by Israel killing my people. That's what she said. He responds by saying, as an American, I am not. And it's not an accident. That's what he says. Palestinian, I'm offended by that. Israel's killing my people. As an American, you're not? Why is that? Because this is a warmonger country. I have an opinion too. I'm allowed an opinion. So you like there it is. Didn't that's, so? Just to be clear, it wasn't Hamas. It was my people. So Palestinians. I'm offended by Israel killing my people. As an American in government, I am not. Oh, so you mean the the government of the rules based international order, or the government that's always professing to fight for human life and human rights and freedom? But as as an American, you are not offended by the killing of Palestinians. It's just, it's just the point is this is what, again, I generally tend to think these people in these positions are not that smart or well-informed. They are followers of politics. They are manipulators of your opinion. They do it for their own petty interests. And then they are manipulated by people above them. That's how I genuinely look at most of it. Sometimes there's little differences here and there, my opinion. But by him saying this, I think is completely self-interest. I think that's just him responding because he thinks that's what you're supposed to be saying right now. Right? Like, Palestinians are bad. We're supposed to support Israel. But just realize, guys, it's on the surface. They do not care. Palestinians are being executed in real time. Genocide is taking place in front of us, and everybody that has any legal standing has been screaming about it. And apparently, our politicians are proudly standing by it. It's crazy. It's upsetting. Now here, to end on this segment, Dave Freeman points out, unless you fired him and all his staff, you ain't reforming the Palestinian Authority. Why are you 
prostrating yourself before a Holocaust denier who pays terrorists to kill Jews, which is a lie. Robert's broken it down. It's a, it's a manipulation of the reality. There's funding that goes to people that die, whether killed by Israelis in the street or acting in some act of war. So it's, it's, it's regardless. And he made this very clear. The point is it goes to family members right, of Palestinians who die. So if Israel executes them in the middle of the street, they give the family money to be able to continue living. So to conflate that with giving, the point is that there's a Palestinian who might act and kill somebody, that that's the same concept. But the reality is that it's simply going to any Palestinian, by the way, most of which are simply killed by Israel for no reason. So it's a, it's a lie. They know it's a lie. They're repackaging the reality to sell you on something they want you to think. But his point is, this is beneath the dignity of the United States. Okay, well then explain for me who they're supposed to be engaging with, David. You're the one telling us that Hamas is the bad guy that we're supposed to be stopping, right? The U.S. keeps pointing at the PA like they're going to be the one that takes power. Israel denies that. And on top of it, the the PA is not, in my opinion, rather specifically, Abbas is not in the interest of Palestinians. I believe he's acting largely in the interest of of the Israelis. Most Palestinians think that. But the PA, you could argue, might be something. The bottom line is Israel keeps making it clear, and the Zionists like David that support them, that there is no option. They don't have a plan. They're just executing, annihilating, destabilizing, destroying genocide. That's what's happening. So, so who's going to take power? The point is they will because they never intended for anybody in Palestine to have any control over the outcome. So Blinken supports their genocide, arms what they're doing. And if you suggest for a brief moment that people matter other than Israelis, you're a terrorist and you support bad guys or you hate Jews, or you wink, wink, we, we suggest that. Well, then, okay, fine. Then you go over and you 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 shake the hand of the Palestinian Authority, who otherwise is regarded as some entity they're supposed to deal with, and they attack him for that too. It just shows you that they're, the only thing the Zionists right now are actively supporting is their lockstep agenda. And the people like this, that are still blindly supporting it, to the tune of actually arming the things they're doing, are actively attacked if they do the smallest thing out of line. So I believe quite strongly that we're seeing across the board, the corporate media and even politicians slowly starting to change their narratives because it's just what else are you going to do at this point? You can't just keep going on. It can't be seven, eight months of genocide. You People will overthrow your governments at that point. I mean, that's what they believe and probably the truth. You At some point, there is a breaking point. So what we're seeing is people like Hillary Clinton start going, okay, we acknowledge that this isn't going to be solved. We have to take action and we have to get ahead of this because we've lost everything because of it. Thank you, Israel's Zionist government, for belligerently acting in your own interest at the expense of everything they built, which is a good thing, by the way. What they built was controlling your life and destroying things. But I think it's important to recognize that. Here's a great clip of exactly that point. I don't trust Morgan, uh, Morgan, Piers Morgan, more than I mean, I, I trust him less than most anybody, quite frankly, because of a lot of different reasons. But nonetheless, here he is coming out looking like somebody who's beginning to ask real questions. And again, because of that contrast, makes the Zionist uh, uh, official here look like they should look belligerent, aggressive, confrontational, and losing. I think Israel had a right to defend itself, a duty to defend itself. But we now have... As we've heard, I think it's 12,000 children believed to have been killed. Uh, another 20,000. Note, by the way, that she shook her head right there. So this is what's clear. She's the Israeli 
official, or rather the representative for Israel in this case, she happily acknowledged, yep, 12,000. That's acceptable, apparently. So have been orphaned. Uh, Two-thirds of Gaza has been flattened. And here Benjamin Netanyahu says after four months... Yep, and she shook her head right there, too. Yep, flattened. Uh-huh. Like, it's almost like you can see... That is my personal opinion, but... There's a level, like, th- that's why they're cheering when they're blowing these buildings up and going, yay, they'll have nowhere to come back to. We just showed you that yesterday. It's, they're proudly, proudly acting in genocide. And there's a level of in- inherent hatred for Palestinians that comes because that's what the Israeli government has seeded into their minds their entire lives. So when she's shaking her head, I think it's like, yep, mm-hmm, we support that. Watch. 20,000 or so have been orphaned children believed to have been killed. Uh, another 20,000 or so have been orphaned. Uh, two-thirds of Gaza has been flattened. And here Benjamin Netanyahu says after four months, well, we're nowhere near finished. There's months more of this. We will continue until okay. the last Hamas terrorist is gone. OK, but that may mean the entire Gaza Strip is gone. Destroyed. Yeah, way to get on board, Piers. Took you four months to realise the blatant, obvious slapping you in the face. It may mean, Well, hang on. It may mean... The number of children killed doubles to 20,000, maybe 30,000. At what point does this become, even to people who support Israel implacably about this, does it become just utterly disproportionate? After the first day, Piers Morgan, like the basic reality of the way they were conducting this was immediately illegal. The idea that collective punishment was being deployed because of X, Y, and Z made it immediately illegal. There is no legal justification to sub- sub- circumvent international law. Like the, I, there, there are different settings that change it, but they have, co- they have committed to collective punishment from the very beginning. And every international group and human rights group, and every, they've all been saying the same. So I just want to make it clear. That's why I do not, I don't, I do not believe this. I mean, I don't think I, I don't want to pretend, I hate to say, I don't want to give him a compliment, let's put it that way. I'm not trying to say Piers Morgan is smart, but I will tell you that he's not stupid. And I think it's very obvious that he is able to discern the obvious thing in front of you. So I think this is just self-interest, him acting like this now. Well, I think proportionality isn't the actual question here. There's a very easy way to end this war, and that is to return all of the hostages and to surrender unconditionally. That is what Hamas <laughs> should be doing. That is where the but focus and the pressure the- is. Sorry, I'm going to stop it a few times in this, but okay, so here's the interesting point here. I've been saying this the whole time. When they say that, they say Hamas should surrender. Okay, Hamas, please surrender. Okay, they didn't do it. Okay, now what? Right, like that's where we need to be. Like, okay, so we hear you saying that. We uh, we all call for Hamas to surrender. They didn't do it. Okay, so now what's the plan? Like, you don't just get to keep saying that's what we all want And then if we don't, in the meantime, we'll just keep murdering everybody. They didn't do it. No one else has some kind of influence over them. You're the one telling us they're a rogue terrorist group. So when they don't surrender, what now? You see, the point is they've manufactured this weird little situation where they can keep saying that. And in the meantime, keep killing everybody, acting like we're the ones not making that happen. It's completely dishonest. They must know that. Oh, here, there's a very easy way to end this war, and that is to return all of the hostages and to surrender unconditionally. That is what Hamas should be doing. That is where the but focus that and the pressure end the war, of the international would it? community. But, uh, hang on, but should, Emily, that would not. Would. That those would are no. Benjamin those are Netanyahu. No, hang on. Benjamin Netanyahu stated yeah. unequivocally: this goes on until Hamas are finished, all of them. 
That means exactly. another exactly. That means another twenty thousand people have to be killed, right? Who are just the terrorists. No. So he's not going to no, stop. So his point is obvious, and she doesn't want to hear it, which is that, okay, so they surrender, which doesn't mean they all walk up and get arrested. They give this, they give the hostage back, right, and they stand down. Piers Morgan's point is, well, okay, then Israel still has to go in there and kill the 20,000 people. By the way, which also includes the select group of leaders that are being safely kept in Qatar that Israel doesn't seem to care about, which that nobody talks about that. So I don't see how exactly you think you're going to remove Hamas while you've got all the leadership, which, by the way, we just showed you they've been funding, which is why they're billionaires in Qatar, which, by the way, Qatar is part of the mediation group. So I just I can't see how we don't recognize that they're literally keeping their controlled assets safe over here while killing all the Hamas members that might actually be fighting for Palestine. Either way, you have to go after them. So there's a guarantee, even after that action, that there's going to be more killing, right? It frustrates me that I have to agree with Pierce Morgan. I'm kind of kidding. But either way, he's absolutely right, but they don't want, she doesn't want to hear it. And she goes right back into the cycle. Once they surrender, it's all over. It's not based in reality. Necessarily. If the hostages got released tomorrow. But that's not true. I said ne- the unconditional, Emily, let me the finish. unconditional let me finish my question. of Hamas. I don't think Prime Minister Netanyahu has any intention, even if the hostages get returned tomorrow, of letting 20,000 Hamas terrorists remain in power in Gaza. He's going to continue. But that's... I already said that. I said the release of hostages and the unconditional surrender of Hamas. Hamas cannot remain in power in the Gaza Strip and restore, have Israel restore a sense of security. Those two things cannot coexist. That is why Netanyahu said we will not accept any term in which Hamas stays in power. Okay, so right there, exactly. As much as they keep trying to pretend, there's been, from the very first week, according to BBC, and I believe it was Associated Press, from the first week, Hamas has offered a full exchange, which again was the real, po- that was the point the whole time they argued the reason they did most of this was to be able to get their hostages back, 10,000 of them. But they wanted a full exchange, a complete, an aid to be brought in, and a complete ceasefire. Israel doesn't want any of that. So regardless of what you think is most important, maybe you don't agree with that. Maybe you think they should take them out. The point is the same. You can't deny that the war, or rather the agenda to take out Hamas, even if you think that then translates to more safety in the future, is more important than the immediate saving of the people they're wanting to take home. Because they keep pretending that's their primary objective. We're here to save the hostages. All the families say that's what we want before anything else. They keep pretending they're doing that. Then they keep refusing to take them back under the interest of taking out Hamas for future safety, or whatever you want to frame it as. So, based on the obvious reality, they care less about the people they claim they're saving than they do about their agenda. Assuming their agenda is even actually about killing Hamas, I don't think it is. Because they will do the same thing again. And the only person that said they'll do the same thing again are the people in Qatar who speak up seemingly when they're pointed to. And the longer this goes on, the longer they stay in power, the more funding. I think the most recent document said 150 million went through Sinwar in the documents that the IDF found on the ground. The more money that Iran is funding... Oh, Iran. It's Iran now, right? Even though Israel just, as it, you know, Haaretz will share that Israel is funding them, but suddenly it's Iran now because you want to connect it with the larger conflict. You cannot just the kill... stronger Hamas you, is. You cannot just kill everybody in Gaza. You can't. Israel is not intending to kill everyone in Gaza. If they carry, they on, for, call if they carry on for many regular, more months... We are risking... If they carry on for many more months, are, how many people are going to get killed? Right. No. I can't this answer that question as to how joke. many people are going to be killed, but I can tell you that not a single, uh, not even one more person would be killed if Hamas surrendered unconditionally today. I'm, 
again, it's just the same point. Like I would love to con- get in some kind of, you know, confront them with that point. Okay. So in the meantime, you're telling us you're going to continue to indiscriminately bomb as if everybody else is responsible for why the terrorist group that you're fighting doesn't just give up and walk forward. That's what you're saying. Like that does not make any logical sense. Nobody else has that power. They are the only party you can deal with to make that argument. They don't want to do that. So you can't just keep going month five, month six, just make them surrender. They're not going to. So you continue to acknowledge the fact that you're choosing to murder everybody essentially as a, as a coercion tool into getting them to resist. That's what you're doing, including your own people who you pretend is your primary objective. All right, I'm going to find out. Listen, we have a person who will be killed. Here's, okay. Can I suggest something? Yes. May, may, may I make a suggestion? Since Netanyahu and his government have, before October 7th, have already, and, and previous Israeli governments, have murdered more civilians than Hamas ever did, why don't we do, why don't we flip this uh, equation and say that the hostages will be released once Netanyahu and his government are taken to The Hague and, 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 uh, and charged with war crimes? I think it makes much more sense. The Israelis have killed far more Palestinian children and Palestinian civilians than Hamas or any Palestinians ever have. Sure. Israeli attacks on guns. She, look, she doesn't even see, flinch. No, no jump to try to defend that. I think it's not they're proud of that. As a preceded Hamas by decades, Israeli attacks October. in the West Bank go on. Israeli attacks in Jerusalem go on, where the, where Hamas is not in charge. Okay. So, I mean, this whole Hamas excuse is ridiculous. Okay. I, 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 why don't we do this? Okay. Let's wait till, till let's wait till we remove uh, Netanyahu's government and then negotiate. I think that should be the condition. And the Israeli military, which is a genocidal terrorist organization, is disarmed and dismantled. Now, see, obviously, I think this is what's building. A lot of people are making this similar argument, which, again, is why I argue somebody like Clinton has stepped up and been like, you're bad, Netanyahu, get out of the way. We're all on the same side, right? Hardly. It's not just Netanyahu, right? He knows that clearly. We were just playing a clip from Miko here on the the uh, the end of the last show. But if you do, if you if you play that game, you can effectively kind of circumvent what they're trying to do there. And the average people who may not know as much as him will get kind of lost in that, thinking if we get rid of Netanyahu, it's a win. And you know, you know, Netanyahu's on his way out anyway. He's you know multiple indictments. The guy is on. He's like the lead, he's like the most hated prime minister in their history. They want him out of the way. So getting him out of the way is not that difficult, right? The point is that they want to maintain the same agenda. And I'll tell you what, to be quite frank, Netanyahu is actually not as extreme as some of the people right behind him. That will be a good time. Okay, let let me me give the final word to the Palestinian on the panel, which is you, Omar. Look, we have to be stop this pretense that Israel is engaging in accidental violence in which Palestinian civilians are killed. Right. Every major human rights organization in the world, including, by the way, Israeli human rights organizations, document that the Israeli military is engaging in indiscriminate violence against civilians. And that is why the International Court of Justice has found that there is actually a plausible case for Israel being engaged in genocidal violence in Gaza. And that should tell you something. And we have to stop pretending that you can kill this many people on accident. And just one issue with with something that you mentioned, Piers, I don't think this is a question of proportionality. We have to be clear about what Israel is doing here. This is not an act of self-defense because an occupier can never, in principle, 
right. and defending themselves against the people they're occupying. If we are serious, once again, what Israel is doing in Gaza, if they wanted self-defense. There were zero, the there were zero Israelis way, in Gaza on October 6th. The, zero. The, the, yeah, Gaza inside, is not but they occupied. controlled Gaza. They bombed it at will whenever they wanted to, and they prevented the Palestinians in Gaza from Israel. going in and out. You never mentioned so Egypt. No responsibility for Egypt. You know Everything is always Israel's fault. Emily, you know, no, 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 you know no. the I'm problem? Sorry. Just these irrational arguments. The, the, see, the problem is these things used to make sense when people didn't understand the dynamic. Egypt has nothing to do with the illegal occupation of Gaza. Well, I shouldn't say nothing, but the point is, in regard to the border, the Israel controls every aspect of that. They just love to pretend like somehow they just allow this border to exist between the group they claim they're terrorists and their ally, their neighbor. It's, why does that even look logically? So from a security perspective, makes sense. It's not true, but that's all they have. The problem with that argument, the problem with that argument is this, is that when it wanted to, at the start of this war, Israel had the power and capability to turn off the energy into Gaza, to turn off the internet, to turn off the water, to turn off the food supply. That is a form of occupation, even if you're not physically inside Gaza. That's actually false. What that's Israel actually is false. Well, it's not false. It's able to turn off all of the water. Yes, it is. is they only control 30% of the Not all of it, but they it was able to turn it off. For a lot of now, that's not true. I'm tired of these. This. This. It's not true. They. They could. They have access and a, their ability to control literally everything that happens in this area. There is not an independent state in there. They completely control everything. Like we have to. And whether or not you want to momentarily pretend like you, if they wanted to, they could shut it down entirely. And that is what the United, the international community has said for a very long time. Electricity. I don't think Israel should have that power over any Palestinians. It's just interesting to see him suddenly making these arguments. I was trying to find the, uh, pretty sure I had that video of, of her. I just played it, by the way. Uh, what's her, uh, 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 Albanese. Actually, oh, here, I can do that, actually. Let me see if I can find it real quick. There it is. Bing. Oh, maybe not. Shoot. Oh, well. Well, I, you, you, I've played this before. Let me see one more look real quick. Yeah. Oh, well. Well, basically, she's a, you know, UN Rapporteur, and she's speaking up on behalf of the reality that Gaza is occupied. That's frustrating. I know I downloaded that. Let me do one more thing. Bear with me. Because I have... Let's see if I saved it in this file. I'm trying to keep these up. Funny enough is after uh, my computer crashed last time, I've been really reluctant to build these tabs up again, the save stuff, because I hate, I was really frustrated to lose it all. Oh, well. Okay, back to the point. So here we have the reality, but through Reuters, acknowledging that they, re they reject the ceasefire proposal. Now, it's even based on their arguments, it's becoming clear that they are aware, that, you know, that ultimately it's, we're refusing their bad offer. But remember, at first it was they're not even offering, which shows you that they were aware at some level that it would not stand. They had to make it out that there was simply no offer, that Hamas just refused to deal with us, which, and they remember in the beginning, we won't deal with terrorist groups. They, they had that narrative set, even though they were, and they were just refusing it. And that eventually came out which is why they had to grudgingly take that small pause. But they 
they do they have made sure from the very beginning they did not want this to happen and this is yet again i think this is like the fourth time netanyahu once again rejects the ceasefire proposal insisting instead on total victory over hamas and just so this is clear the only way to read this the israeli government chose war with hamas even if you think that leads to a positive end for the same people instead of the immediate rescuing of its people knowing that the war would almost certainly take their lives Here's the article if you want to read it for yourself. Craig Murray writes, so Netanyahu's position is he will never agree to any ceasefire until Israel has bombed to death all of the hostages they haven't killed yet. Exactly. David Collier writes, and this is a really interesting uh, propaganda point. Hamas didn't offer a ceasefire. Yeah, they really did, though, which you can easily. I mean, here's what's funny. Netanyahu rejects ceasefire proposal (laughs) from Somebody else from Hamas, obviously, right? It says it right there. So here he says they didn't. They called for Israel to withdraw. Well, here's the point, though. Part of their ceasefire agreement was for Israel to, it's a ceasefire. They would withdraw. There'd be a ceasefire. There'd be exchange of hostages. Aid would come in. That's pretty stupidly obvious. But they want to make that into not a ceasefire, even though it obviously was part of it. I mean, is Israel calling for a, a uh, what's the way to put it? Like, the point is, there's agreements. They're not just about one thing. Israel's not just going, pause. They're saying, pause, and we exchange hostages. So by your logic, you would say, it's not a pause. It's about hostage. It's the same thing. They're just pretending only one of those things can be in existence. That's just show, This is just weak efforts. But it says, given the current military situation, it would be like Hitler asking the Allies to surrender in early 1945. Surrender. Did I, I, did I, I didn't see a surrender anywhere in there, but this is how they keep playing this game, right? When you call for a ceasefire, Elon Levy pretends you're calling for amnesty for Hamas, even though I point out then that means you don't understand the definition of amnesty. But they just love to make that the point. In this case, calling for ceasefire means you're asking to surrender. That's not the truth. You've, even if you want to conflate those and argue it default becomes that's not, that's not what's happening. It goes, Israel told them what to do with their delusional offer. No, in fact, he tried to pretend it wasn't happening many times. But here's the interesting point in this that I think is the way to think about it, right? So he's saying the equivalent is it would be Hitler asking the allies to surrender. But I argue the equivalent would be if Hitler offered to release all of the imprisoned Jews. If the U.S. government withdrew, right? Okay, so in that context, the point was that they were trying to, like, historically trying to save all the people, right? But again, you could argue at that moment that the U.S. was far more interested in their war than the people, right? That's obvious. So the equivalent would be if Hitler was like, we'll release everybody if you just back away. My point is the same with Gaza. Just because they would go, okay, we withdraw. Let all the people go. Does that mean they couldn't just go right back in? That's obviously what, even if they wrote down an agreement, that's what they would probably do. Same goes for Gaza. Same goes for any situation. But and the point, with it continued, the logic, the analogy forward, it would be as if he offered to release everybody if the U.S. withdrew, but then instead the U.S. pushed forward anyway, knowing that those people would die in the way that they expected them to. That's the real analogy. But you see, he tries to make it about surrender and about somehow somehow by doing this is surrendering to the Nazis because that's the best you can do. It's just just so incredibly frustrating. 
You're using analogy that actually exposes your position in a bad way because you just want to call them Nazis because that's the best argument you got. Ah, she said the bottom line comes down to they don't care about the people they're trying to rescue. They care more about the war. Thank you for making my point, David. Well, I'll let you watch this on your own time again. To re- so as he's pretending he cares about the hostages, you know what? Let's just play this. For those that haven't seen it, important to see this. Oh, wait, maybe I didn't download it. Since we're long anyway. Or maybe just a part of it anyway. So as he's screaming about how it's all about the people they care about, the hostages, and right, that's what they're, that they, they clearly, it's been proven. And this is from Uncaptured Media, Dan Cohen specifically, that they've killed their own people. In more than one case, too. Repeatedly, in fact. And I argue, as I've been saying for a while now, that this is deliberate. That this is on purpose. This is the Hannibal Directive. Is Israel applying the Hannibal Directive to captives and hostages in the Gaza Strip? The Hannibal Directive is a classified Israeli military protocol, which calls for use of all necessary means to prevent the abduction of its own forces, even at the price of killing them. It has been used multiple times in the past decade, most notably in the 2014 capture of Israeli soldier Hadar Golden. Taken into a tunnel near Rafah, Israel unleashed massive firepower killing him and more than 130 Palestinians. The Hannibal Directive was also widely implemented on October 7th in order to prevent captives from being taken into Gaza, not only soldiers, but civilians. Numerous Israelis who have since been released from captivity said that Israeli bombing was the greatest threat to their lives. So what scared you? From the booms around, that the IDF doesn't know our location, suddenly a missile would hit. On December 15th, Israeli forces killed three Israeli captives who were shirtless and held a white flag. On January 15th, captive Noah Argamani said two others were killed in airstrikes. One former captive told Benjamin Netanyahu, I was in a house surrounded by explosions. We slept in tunnels. and We feared that not Hamas, but Israel might kill us. And then it would have been said, Hamas killed you. So I'll leave it there since I'm going to try to go through this quickly. But I'll include as well, Cuds News Network, this roundly reported even by Israeli platforms, Yair Netanyahu was caught on a Telegram channel discussing how the military did not execute the Hannibal Directive fully. He said there's a procedure called the Hannibal Directive. 
The planes that were supposed to be in the air on Gaza border were supposed to be destroying everything that moves there, crush everything. And thus, we would not have had 256 prisoners. The fact that they, that did not bomb means that there's a big problem with the Air Force. So they didn't kill enough of their people. That's the problem. Exactly. Now, just again, rapidly, maybe some I'll go through after this. I, I reached out to Freddie Pontone about this because it was in French. And I just wanted to make sure you saw this, how ridiculous this is. That's funny. Of course, the translation goes away. It was there before. Oh, no, there's right there. Okay, good. So Sandra Ifra, who is a, like a woman's leader in this group about uh, abused, it, I forget exactly, but the point is she spoke up on a French channel arguing after the ceremony honoring French victims in Hamas, quote, there was a Hamas hostage who had 67 different sperms found inside of her. And going on to cite all the atrocity propaganda nonsense, the rape, that's what actually was said. There is zero evidence of anything like that. First of all, not a single person, not from hostages or from October 7th, has ever come forward claiming I was raped. It's always been secondary through people who have otherwise been caught lying about a lot. So her, she is giving you a secondhand report of something she was told. I, and there, there, It's nowhere. This doesn't exist. Quite frankly, I'm arguing it's not real. The point is, you can look for this and you'll find this, a lot of the same old people, the same accounts you might expect with big followings, sharing this as if it was fact. Why? Because this one woman says she heard that on a show in a French channel. That's, the, that's how great media is today in the corporate field. That's what they said, because I that's the narrative I like to spread. 67 you realize how crazy it is to go this far when, the, and this is at the time when there's a lot of other things falling apart. Atrocity propaganda seems the only direction they can go in at this point. Remember, there is so much that has been lied about that they keep pushing these narratives. Regard the, the very the entire allegation of rape has been put away by most every international entity because nothing else has come forward. They pushed and they pushed and they pushed as if there was more about to come. There's nothing. Their own outlets proved that they never took forensic evidence, which is ridiculous. That, to me, tells you right there that they knew there wasn't enough. They lied about everything, including pelvic bones being broken, even though you could look up the reality of how wildly difficult, impossible. It takes a car wreck level of trauma to cause that. Not one person. Not ten people. It's ridiculous. But the arguments and, and the evidence that's gone forward showing you that they staged certain things. They lied about certain things. They lied about babies being hurt. It's crazy. So the idea that we can just jump to 67, I mean, if that was real, if there was evidence for that, it would be everywhere. And I'm not saying that that's why I think it's fake. I think that's fake because the evidence already backs up that there is no evidence. How are we pretending they've got 67 different sperms when they already admitted there was no forensic evidence and that time has already passed? Now that's October 7th. Now, if someone comes home from being in Gaza, this would have been tested the information would have been reported and this would have been a bigger story but on top of that nobody has ever come forward discussing this from the individual person the family members nothing this comes out through a random woman supporting the narrative of israel and what happened there on a french channel and again freddie pontone went through this and was we were talking about because it's in french and there's no evidence to this this is the kind of stuff that gets put forward and the media bites down just to op play the opening part of this, here is uh, Jerry, Jeremy Scahill just acknowledging what we keep telling you. 
within hours of uh, these attacks happening, uh, the Netanyahu government began to craft a, uh, a very deliberate propaganda campaign to sell the United States, uh, other Western leaders, and the global public on a scorched earth war of annihilation against Gaza. And this campaign kicked into such high gear uh, immediately. And what they did, what was central to this, is that the Israelis began um, showing uh, President Biden, Secretary of State Blinken, uh, the heads of state of NATO countries and other Western nations, um, images and videos uh, that they then proceeded to tell an unverified story about what they depicted. And the characterization from Netanyahu and Defense Minister Yoav Gallant was that um, this was uh, the, the greatest act of violence against Jewish people since the Holocaust, uh, that the tactics that Hamas used um, included rape, beheading of babies, uh, mutilation of bodies, torture of families, the bounding of children in groups, including in a nursery in one of the kibbutzes, and then engaging in mass execution of small children, setting children um, on fire. And uh, President Biden, Secretary Blinken, and many uh, Western leaders then started to repeat these claims. Um, but what happened is that when Israeli Social Security uh, Agency began to actually document uh, the deaths on uh, October 11th, they documented uh, 1,139 deaths, um, 695 of them were civilians, and we started reviewing the public documentation of the deaths. Um, it turns out that there was only one infant that was killed uh, in all of the attacks combined on October 7th, the nine-month-old right. baby. Uh, and that's the crux of the point, right? So. 40 beheaded babies? Nope. 15 on a clothesline? No. One in a mom's stomach, one in the oven? No. None of this happened. None of it. And that's been proven even by Haaretz, as we've shown you. Discussing the exact, you can read it for yourself, it's in Hebrew, fine translation, not all of which happened in reality. And they explicitly discussed the rape conversation, the baby in the oven, the woman's stomach being cut open. These were lies. They were proven that they could not have happened based on, like he said, the fact that there's only one child in the entire conversation. Or, I mean, there's so many different ways to prove this, including examples from people who claim that they know this didn't happen or examples of showing you they've been caught lying about things that we can prove didn't. That even this, the reporters or even the IDF walked back and said, no, that didn't happen. And yet we can't acknowledge, I mean, so this is the problem when now Israel, their main account says rape is not resistance and then show this weird clip without the date of attackers laughed as they raped and murdered. No, that was, that was witness says it turns out a witness who the, this is all information that comes through the same uh, Zaka groups and the same, the people that have already been caught lying. And guess what? The rape story, as we just discussed is not backed up by evidence, but is there anybody anywhere Arguing that rape was legitimate resistance, all that is is conflating things like, well, I'm saying that, you know, legal international law armed resistance. Well, that's why I make an explicit point to say anything after that that was a crime is not included. Nobody out there is going rape because we're fighting for freedom. They're just trying to conflate people promoting pro-Palestine positions as somehow supporting all the atrocities they allege happened. Nobody's doing that. It's just absurd because this is desperation. And same thing. First of all, this woman who nobody has yet to prove it all what actually happened, as much as I would also argue that the brown, the gray pants with the stain would be indicative of something, still haven't been proven. We don't know what actually happened. And yet that's become this idol of this whole conversation. Rape is not resistance, they say. Again, who's saying that? 
Who is arguing that rape is resistance? Anybody? Israel. Saying that we're saying that, but we're not. Here's Hillary Clinton. Ali Abu, uh, uh, Abu Naman points out that war criminal Hillary Clinton is hosting a Columbia panel on conflict-related sexual violence based largely on lies about October 7th. And that's how this works. Even as she is over here going, Netanyahu bad, you're over here promoting the lies. Part of the agenda. Cuts News Network points out a new investigation by Israel's Khan News has revealed that dozens of Israelis, in fact, lied claiming that they were attending the Nova Music Festival on October 7th to earn dozens of thousands of shekels in compensation. The investigation stated that the individuals in question presented false evidence claiming that they were victims of Palestinian resistance. Gee, I wonder if that's where some of these fake stories came from. Or maybe they were told to do that. This raises questions about whether Israel used such false evidence to support the narrative of October 7th. Here, Albir points out, pretend to be shocked. This is the same point Israel Khan News broadcaster revealed in his investigation that dozens of Israelis lied fraudulently claiming they were victims of October 7th. And of course, as much as it was like near impossible to locate, I did find it. This is the actual, this is the breakdown. You can watch the video without shame. The Israelis who pose as survivors of the Nova massacre. Now, I mean, trust me. There's a reason this stuff is so hard to find. We search for the exact title. We, I, we, me, both of us, Orwell's help, we were searching. Nowhere. I was lucky enough to find this in an abstract way, but the point is, you try to search for this stuff, you don't find it. There's a reason for that. This is important. They're telling you that Israelis pretended to be raped, pretended to be abused in order to make money off of the, of the, the larger lie, which Israel was all too happy to blindly accept because it's all been a bunch of lies. I don't mean that in the sense of that Hamas didn't do anything, that there weren't crimes committed. I mean about the atrocity propaganda. They've been caught. And on top of that, the Nova rave security chief actually confirms on top of everything that Israel neglected alerts. Now, this you should act on top of it. You should ask whether this might be floated in the interest of covering up that they actually just failed. They really just didn't see it coming because they were just not as good as they said they were. That's certainly possible. But either way, it's being reported from one of these guards saying, I'm a guard at the festival who had served in the Reem division. And this is somebody speaking to their friend saying, and a week before the festival, he sent me a voice message, basically warning me saying something's going to happen. I just wanted to let you know that there's a lot of warnings. Now that goes by the person asks after October 7th, finds the person and says, I told him, I wanted to talk to you about the recording you sent me a week before the festival. You were speaking in codes. Tell me exactly what you, what, he, what they said to you. He told me, quote, they told me there was going to be an invasion and that they planned to take over towns. I just wasn't allowed to tell you that. Wow. So either this is a, a way to cover up the fact that they're just in incompetent. But I'm, I'm kind of leaning in the direction here. I'm kind of leaning that I, it makes more sense to me that the that let's just say the religious Zionism party. The, the extremist entities wanted this to happen so they could reposition themselves as the attacked Jewish population that is suppressed. And so we need Israel to support. That's, that's a Zionist manipulation of Judaism. Either way, I think that that's possible. And there was a lot of evidence of people that was foreknowledge. And it seems to me that that was them knowing this would happen. It might be that parts of Israeli government didn't know that. It says, this is the late, I mean, we could be very well be watching a coup take place in Israel for all we know. This is the latest of a growing number of reports that Israeli authorities ignored multiple warnings. 
Very interesting. Now, Sam Hussein is pointing out that South Africa needs to be doing more, right? That it's very clear that they're not following the orders. And the good thing was, there are now other groups speaking up. Nicaragua has requested permission to intervene, basically just in a, in a legal sense, that they're speaking up on behalf of South Africa's case and that Israel is doing everything they say they're doing. So this is changing. Minister, and this is just in general, as we kind of wrap up here, Israel's committed 15 massacres. Guys, this is every day. Don't get, don't let this become white noise because it is every day. You'll find these posts every day because it is every day. 15 massacres in the past 24 hours, 130 civilians, 170 wounded, which brings the provable total to 27,840 killed, most of which are women and children. This is snipers shooting at medical staff in Nasir Hospital and Khan Yunus, you know, the safe zone. They say they're obsessing with killing, humiliation, and torture of medical staff, a tactic that has no strategic value unless you're committing a genocide. And they are. They're just shooting at people trying to flee. It's everywhere. Here's Khan Yunus in general, the area that's supposed to be safe. Israeli's 55th Paratroopers Brigade actually released this on their own channels involving the killing of an unarmed individual, destruction of the neighborhoods, mosques, and in some cases, the entire village. Look at this. This is them posting this proudly doing, you know, we're blowing up their homes. We're killing this innocent person. See that? Shopping with shopping bags. They posted that. They're laughing about this. This is the reality. That's why, and that's why they're tagging the ICJ, which by the way, it seems like they're actually cataloging. They're laughing about this because they don't think they're going to be held accountable. The cradle points out, and this one, this one, I think this is the one. Yeah, this this one makes me sick. This is a bunch of children at a protected location in Rafa, by the way. We'll get to this point. I mean, I'm probably just going to try to wrap this up. Like I keep, I don't mean like rush. I think actually do this to finish, but I know I say this every time. Rafa is where they're supposed to go after Khan Yunus, both of which are supposed to be safe. The point is, there is nowhere else after Rafa. Egypt is the only other place. So now that they're bombing in Rafa. I mean, this is literally fish in a barrel. They don't have anywhere to go. So what's the internet? Where, where's the, what's the U.S. saying? Where's Blinken? Trying to pretend like he care about these people. There is nowhere else for them to move to. They're telling them, you can't go back north. We'll shoot you. That's what they're saying. They're saying, you got to leave Khan Yunus. Go to Rafa because we're going to bomb Khan Yunus. We got to move Rafa. We're going to go after Rafa. We're going to invade. They're literally telling you they're executing these people. This is a location in Rafa where they have displaced children. And they bomb it. Hey, that's right behind their tents. So you've got children trying to do whatever event they were trying to do, trying to have some semblance of life, and they bomb it. And these are protected locations that are acknowledged, that tell them where they are, and they just, they, they don't even have to make the excuse of Hamas anymore. They just, that's just the foregone conclusion. Oh, they bombed. Well, it must be Hamas. Doesn't that work out nicely for them? Look at this. People die. God, this makes me sick. Yeah, I don't want you to see the graphic stuff, guys. Children. A whole group of children. I have soldiers conducted a drone strike on an ambulance. Now watch this one. This one's actually a really important one for, 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 from a legal perspective. Look at how crowded this street is. 
right on the top of the video there underneath the hearts, you're going to see an ambulance right there. You can see a bunch of civilians right around it. Watch what happens. That is what happens. That is an illegal act, no matter how you spin it. I don't care if you think Hamas is in the ambulance. That is a public public street for civilians. And they're all around them. They're they're brazen at this point. They just don't care. Here's another. These are all different examples. Palestinian Red Crescent paramedics killed. Several injured as Israeli forces open fire on their ambulances while they're transferring patients. These are Hamas members. You can see these are just average people. They're transferring people to hospitals and they bomb them. No one's even giving excuses anymore. Israel's military shoots and kills two paramedics who are simply helping to evacuate wounded from Gaza City. David Collier. This is the one that was denying before. Here's what he says. There is no genocide in Gaza. Right? Ignore all the human rights groups, every UN entity, Oxfam, every one of them. Ignore it. Ignore the world court who said that he's wrong. David knows better. He says the genocide myth is a fake story created to demonize Israel. So apparently in his mind, literally everybody and every entity that, by the way, they would otherwise tell you to listen to every other time until now, suddenly all hates Israel to the point to where they would undermine every ounce of credibility they have just to hurt them. I mean, this this is the whole, one of those points is what's more logical that literally everyone in the world is wrong and you're right or the opposite. So both are possible, but it's obvious what's happening right now. And help save Hamas, right? Because Human Rights Watch wants to save Hamas, because Amnesty wants to save Hamas, because Bet Selim wants to save Hamas, Oxfam, UN, everyone, they want to save Hamas. That's what's happening. The world court, every one of the judges, except I think one or two, wants to save Hamas. How do you make sense of that? The 30,000 strong group inside of this one location in the world. Explain it for me, bud. Sadly, he says, many ignorant fools across the world have given the genocide myth legs. It just sounds stupid. Here's a question none of them ever answer. How many of them were dead terrorists? You know why we can't, David? Because nobody knows that. Because they don't have any information either, which proves to you that they're indiscriminately killing people. And they've admitted that. On top of that, is your argument actually that we should not care about anything because they might be terrorists? Yep. You, I don't think he realizes how bad that looks for him. How many were terrorists? Well, yeah, exactly. How many? Do you know? I could tell you that the thirty, the 10,000 children weren't, right? Do you not care about that? Like, they trap themselves because these people are so desperate. I mean, he's a, apparently an award-winning journalist. He's I, hopefully, hopefully going to lose every bit of influence he's ever had because he's revealing that at the very least on this topic, he is a child. I just can't believe that. Again, to make it clear. They've made it obvious that they don't, I mean, the entire article was just written about the reality that they don't fully know what's actually happening. They're estimating. And on top of that, there's 10,000 children at the very least, uh, 124 members of the UN, 127 journalists. Are you pretending they're all terrorists? That, that's the, he doesn't know. And so his point is, we're going to ignore all of these crimes in the interest of just, they might be terrorists. That's gaslighting for terrorism. And then again, here's the breakdown. As even Israeli's intelligence apparatus is using as as correct. That's been admitted too. They're taking, they've got as a health ministry data for their own intelligence reports. That's been discussed by Israeli media. 
Tiberius writes, they call it the Israel-Hamas war to detract from the, the fact that over 90% of the victims are innocent Palestinian civilians. How does a conflict between two groups end up with over 90% of the casualties belonging to neither? It doesn't. It's a war on Gaza, on Palestine, and it's decades old. Cuts News Network. It's now 124 journalists killed. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. Al Jazeera in Lebanon, right at the beginning, or rather Reuters, in fact. That was, it wasn't Al Jazeera. It was a Reuters journalist in Lebanon, right in the beginning, which that we could, that in fact, TLAV was one of the first people to break that story when, when even the court, even Reuters hadn't admitted the reality. Why? Because it was provable right when it happened. I think that was it right there. That's their article. I was going to give you mine. Oh, no, that's not the same one. <laughs> Six people killed in a school in Gaza. That used to be big news. Nor points out, due to the presence of an Israeli sniper, citizens are now resorting to, look at this, dragging this water jug back and forth by a string because they know they're going to get shot if they walk in the street. You know, because democracy. And here is how they're pretending that makes sense. Here is one of these Israeli military entities who is making the same argument that woman just made on the news, but now they're just coming out with it. Why is it all okay? Because every one of them are terrorists. It's what we kept telling you they've always been saying. His point is that every house, every mosque, every school has a tunnel. So we have to kill all of them. But we're only going after Hamas, though. Can you paint a picture of the largesse of weapons, the cache of weapons that have been found since October 7th began? Because many of those weapons also came in then. You know, when you look at the Gaza Strip, a civilian who never went there, you could see a picture of it or a video of it. You see houses. Now there's a lot of destruction there. What you cannot see is the underground facilities under the houses, but you also cannot see the amount of weapons and explosives that were hidden in ordinary houses. Israeli troops, as they're now more on search and destroy kind of... All right, so what you have to do is wait for them to present it to you on a sheet out in the open and tell you where they found it and why it's relevant. Sort of like the video they show people that now we know is fake. I wonder if it's the same thing. What do you think? ...of missions going through areas where there's already very little enemy activity, but they're going through and making sure to dismantle all of the infrastructure, the weapons and the rocket launches, etc. There's hardly a house that our troops go to that doesn't have either an entrance to a tunnel, a shaft, or weapons that are stocked inside, or explosives, or where they're manufacturing weapons, or it's a hideout for terrorist activity. Right, so whatever you want, you you pick. Whatever you want it to be, that's what they're guilty. They're all dead because one of those things was happening. It's just so... I, it's just there's not there's not a word in there's not enough to express how messed up this all is. Not only just because that's crazy, but because everybody seems to know that, including the ones that are allowing it. I found the article here. Reuters journalist killed by Israeli bombing October 13th. It took them like a month for even Reuters to admit that happened. Unra pointing out the situation is catastrophic. Now, I want you to hear this. There is not a single house that was not damaged. This is the United Nations telling you there's not a single house that was not damaged in northern Gaza. Not a single house. And that's why that's what they're saying. Well, it's because they're all terrorists. It's just it's this is what everybody said would never happen. 
All the ones gaslighting for this, acting like they're only pinpoint targeting Hamas as they just level the area, as they are promoting the building of settlements, but pretending that's not happening. Not a single house was undamaged. CNN, we're slowly dying. Palestinians are eating grass and drinking polluted water, but who cares? Who cares, right? Because we're trying. They're dying. They're starving to death. Israel's policy of starvation in Gaza will have long-term effects, causing famine. The point is there's children every day right now starving. And this is being reported on the ground of children actually dying of starvation right now. Millions at risk of starving in Gaza as Israelis actively continue to prevent aid. Despite Israeli army declaring Gaza border a military zone, what they did, Jewish protesters continue to arrive at the border crossing and block the passage. It's, it's like 10, 12 days in a row now. And my point was, it's a coordinated effort. Here's the tents they're camping out in. They're all uniform. Someone gave it to them. As I said, it's a coordinated effort led by the Israeli government to stop the aid from getting to Palestinians. Even as children are literally starving to death every day now, per human rights groups. Note the uniform tents. And here's a Mossad video where they're going, thank you all that came out yesterday to prevent the aid. As I said, notice how all the tents are uniform. It's, they're openly supporting this, guys. This is genocide. They're actively starving these people to death. And oh, and here's where they bombed the water distribution tank, killing 13 people in the process, all civilians, including seven children. But as long as we stop the water from people who need it, then democracy, right? Um, and this is Arnaud Bertrand. See where we are. I think, uh, yeah, I think I'm just going to, this is just the same thing you'd expect. <laughs> Asking why the UNRWA, why, why it's okay to cut funding to UNRWA when there's no evidence. Her answer is, well, other people can fund them too. Just gross. Absolutely disgusting. Canadian officials, by the way, still haven't seen intelligence that links the UN agency to Hamas. That was yesterday. This is how ridiculous this is. Even the Canadian platforms, which, by the way, tend to be pretty bad. They, we haven't seen any evidence. That's how this ended up. The Limkin Institute says the same thing. After the, after the light of the paucity of evidence, the Limkin Institute expects that the countries who have suspended promised aid to UNRWA will now reinstate that aid. They won't do it because it's about propaganda and an agenda. The point is their evidence has fallen apart because it didn't exist. Just like with the atrocity propaganda, they floated as if it's all in the it's all in the works. It's coming soon. And nope, it's all insinuation, allegations, lies. Canadian in Ramallah points out another diplomatic mission has called in Israel to cease dem dem demolitions, schools, everything else in the West Bank. But yeah, that's happening too. This is coming from Belgium, Canada, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Italy, Ireland, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Spain, Sweden, the UK, the European Union, all of them in, these, in regard to the diplomatic missions calling for this. Lastly, UNRWA pointing out intense fighting in Khan Yunus the last 15 days. 290 attacks impacting UN locations, killing 389 people, sheltering within protected, acknowledged UN locations. That used to be the biggest story in the world. Nobody cares about it right now. And David Rothberg, Roth Lindbergh pointing out Israeli fighter jets are now striking Rafa. So where else are they going to go? They're literally pinned in when, nope, they're not allowed to go anywhere else. Israel's telling them to go to Rafa and then bombing Rafa like they've been doing the entire time. It says the city of Rafa was designated a safe area and then they bombed it. And now they're apparently getting ready to invade. And remember, they just put leaflets. This was like two days ago over Khan Yunus saying, go to Rafa, 
go to Rafa. And then like the same day they bomb Rafa. It's insulting. Everybody can see this. Blinken to Bibi yesterday. U.S. very concerned about the possible Israeli ground operation in Rafa. Just makes you sick. That's what you got? How about you go stop the genocide? How about we don't fund you because you're murdering children? No, we're very concerned about your illegal genocide. Shut up. Like, it just, this person is not real. What you're doing is worse than doing nothing. Anra, enormous concern. Fear in Rafa in the last 48 hours. We've seen some very heavy airstrikes. It's undeniable. Here's what, here's what Elon Levy says. The UN is complicit with the Hamas human shield strategy. What'd they say? UN says Israeli offensive and overcrowded Rafa could amount to war crimes. His response? You're complicit in their human shield strategy. I mean, do I even need to say it? That screams desperation. That is exactly, nobody who is honest is ever going to buy that. Not because you might, what if Hamas is there? It's the same point from the beginning. You're murdering civilians on a massive scale because you claim, okay, prove it, right? Elon, give me the evidence that shows Hamas is even in that location. They don't have it. It's insinuation, it's allegation. And in fact, it's been proven per 972 Magazine, Amnesty International, even the IDF themselves, that they are not doing that. They're bombing wherever they want to because it's not about Hamas. UN says Israeli offensive and overcrowded Rafa could amount to war crimes. And then, of course, he just tries to pivot another way and goes, we don't even want Gaza. We're, we're, that's why we left in 2005, even though that's ridiculously false. Thought I had it right there, maybe. I, I wish I'd included that. The point is, obviously, they still occupy the area. It's blindly obvious. He says the Palestinians can have it. <laughs> oh, is that why you're pushing them into Egypt? Problem is, they used it to launch missiles and blah, blah, blah. It's just the same old regurgitated nonsense. And I said, liar as usual. Is that why cabinet ministers are jubilant in their calls to go back into Gaza and remove them? Oh, it's like their own narrative is destroyed by their own narratives. It's, it's embarrassing. And I'll leave you with this. Alan Mizari points out, if you're Jewish and you want to combat anti-Semitism, at this point, there is only one thing you can do. Distance yourself from Israel's actions. The more Jews speak out against this horror, the better chance of fair treatment we have as a collective in the post-genocide world. Believe me, he says. The paranoia and revenge camp is trying to drag us all into this so as to make sure we are all for this, for their genocide. They are trying to monopolize our very humanity. Every human should speak out and speak up about grave injustice. But if you're Jewish at this particular moment in history, this may have actual remediations for your own people, community, family, and self. It shouldn't in, an, in a world where people aren't. The point is that, yeah, people are dumb. People are reactive. And they will tend to take the narrative that even at their failure, Zionists will put in front of them, blaming the Jewish people for their Zionist agenda. And then his point is that even then, even when this falls apart, and even when we're post that genocidal, that people will still, in some ways, view that as Jewish people were part of it. Now, in, a, in essence, you can argue that there's a clear, large entity of Jewish people within Israel that blindly support their agenda. But I will always point out, like, look, individuals are responsible for their choices, always. Nonetheless, you have to factor in the fact, just like I point out with the U.S., that the government has blindly propagandized people to be supporting of terrible wars, wars based on profit. But they don't think that. They thought oh, it was freedom, whatever else. So it's the same concept. A lot of these people believe in whatever Israel has propagandized them to think. 
doesn't remove their accountability for their actions, but it's important to consider that too. His point is, if you're a Jewish person and you can see that what they're doing is bad, speak up about it to help avoid whatever future might happen because of assumptions like that that are done because of the Zionist agenda. But it says, do not give us, give into pressure. Speak out, speak up. You have no idea how stupid and potentially disastrous your silence will look in a couple of years. I mean, looks that way right now. Don't let this be understood as something Jews as a collective united behind, which I, I already think that's clear. It's not the case. I quite frankly think there are more Jewish groups pushing back against this than there are supporting it. But it says you must not let this happen. Speak. I agree. And we'll leave it there today. Thank you for tuning in, guys. There's just so much to talk about. There's so much important stuff going on. I just thought it was really important today to pull in these other two discussions as, you know, as it's people suffering around the world. It matters, especially when you can recognize that it's not, you know, some random series of events, but being orchestrated, allowed, driven into reality for the benefit of a corporation, a government, or, or you know, in, in anything other than the interest of the people at hand, you know, in these countries. It's, it's just constant. And again, it's something we need to come to terms with as Americans, as people of the world, that in, in, in most cases, your governments are willing to abuse your interests, your rights, the resources of your country for their own agenda. And I think that is, I mean, obviously, that's why these governments would fight to put somebody they can control in these places so they can exploit that. And in, in the U.S.'s case, do so in, the, in acting like you're fighting for people's interests, which, as I've always said, is the worst of the worst. A murderer is a bad person, but a murderer who pretends they're saving people is worse than than the person not. I think that that's that's why I think that Trump was better than others, and because he just he showed you he took the mask off or taking the oil. It's like, well, yeah, you're disgusting, but at least I can see that. That's I think that's important. But I see things shifting. I really truly believe that things are shifting, but it's always a, a mixed bag. If we don't capitalize on that momentum, if we don't step in and do something and raise awareness and keep doing so, there are entities that will always find ways to roll it back in. QAnon and Russiagate and all these different ways, they will use your awareness to to fold you back into the same problems. See through it. You're smarter. You are, you, we've, we have all always been smarter than they give us credit for. And I think they're just now kind of coming to terms with that. Stand up, speak out, find the courage. I love you all. As always, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant.